This is uh, Ink Studs on the Road. Uh, Brent and I are continuing our journey in Portland, and we're at the home of Bob Shrek and his husband Randy. Uh, thank you for having us, Bob. Tis our pleasure. Perfect. And Bandit. Right and on cue. Bandit the dog, who has the most scratchable chest. He's got <laughs> right in there. Um, now, Bob's kind of trying to figure out the best way to describe your role in comics, because you've been fairly central... Um, for, I don't know, how, how many years do you think you've been involved in comics at this point? Uh, professionally, uh, I think I started at Marvel in 82, I can't really remember. Um, but I was at creation conventions before then, uh, 76, 77, again, it's all a blur, uh, working with Gary and Adam, um. But so that's the professional end. But I started in getting into the whole comic book thing probably when I was fourteen. I believe I was at the '69 Phil Suling convention. I know I have the little. Uh, I had a house fire, so I lost a lot of stuff. But somehow that little program or whatever it was survived. So you did so. you start reading at fourteen or start actually actively being part of the community? And then, well, actively, I guess reading at 14, but immediately thereafter was, was going to the, the flea markets, you know, the sewing shows. Uh, my buddy Larry, uh, I, did, I made movies when I was younger. I started making movies when I was nine years old. First movie, Day After Christmas, Godzilla, of course, <laughs> my Aurora Godzilla um, in the snow. But um, so, yeah, so I started, uh, I guess, professionally around 77, 78. Um, but yeah, and, and, you know, my dad always used to say, it's, you know, it's not who you know, it's what you know. And my oldest brother, Billy, uh, eventually married the boss's daughter. So he would always get my father's ire up uh, and say, oh, dad, it's, well, it's who you know and not what you know. And I luckily went on both sides and said, no, 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 it's who you know and what you know. Mm-hmm. And having been in the community for as long as I have, uh, and then sitting at the, the feet of, of, of Archie Goodman <coughs> and so many others, that shush isn't working. <laughs> uh, you know, sitting with Archie Goodwin and Dick Giordano and all the people that I was lucky enough to hang out with, Gil Kane, you know, the minute he opened his mouth, I was sitting on the chair next door just taking it all in, even though there was a lot of bluster there as well he was no dummy you know he understood uh, what was going on what the comics that uh, initially attracted right right actually my buddy larry a long time friend since i was 14 or 13 whatever year it was again i'm very old so it all gets blurry but uh he was the one who handed me uh fantastic four and i had only made movies i made flip movies i drew like crazy you know draw skippy and all that kind of stuff and I was like, ah, comic books, I don't read comic books. And uh, those are for kids. So he handed me Fantastic Four, and don't ask what number, but it was great. It blew my mind. Right. I was like, wow, this is really different, you know. Um, so I was always interested in the, you know, art and everything. I just didn't really get into comic books. I was a fan of Bernie Wrightson before he did Swamp Thing. You know, I had all of his web of horror stuff and all that kind of stuff. So, but one of the things, I went to a place called the Glass Onion, which is a Beatles song. I believe it's a full title of a song. And it was a head shop, and I walked in, and there was Cheech Wizard. Nice. And I remember going, I, 
I think I want to buy this. <laughs> and it had all the elements that I enjoy in life. <laughs> and I went, wow. And then I became a big Vaughn Baudet fan and, and uh, got to meet him and become friends with him and, and uh, knew his son when he was just a wee. Nice. How was that. the experience of, of meeting? Did, did, did Baudet in person match his work for you? Yeah, well, in the beginning he was Vaughn, and then as time went on, he became a princess. Mm -hmm. He became a female. Uh, and with struggling with my own sexuality, he kind of scared me because I like all the parts I have. I don't want to swap out right. any parts. Mm -hmm. But he appeared to be wanting to become a woman, and I don't know, maybe he just enjoyed dressing as a princess or whatever that was. So at a young age, it was a little intimidating, a little scary. I don't, know, I don't know. Again, it's all a blur. I could have been 14, uh, mm -hmm. 13, 14, 15, somewhere. That would have been, like, at yeah. that age, I would be like, all oh, right, life is very different. Yeah. But he must have been in his mid-20s by then, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, so, yeah. And we became friends. Actually, I always tell this story, Randy's heard it many times. I became, and I... I started making this up as my own fiction, and then Bernie Wrightson actually confirmed it a few years ago at San Diego. I was kind of, to at least to him and uh, to Barry Windsor Smith, I was kind of the fifth studio mate. Mm -hmm. You know, the hell with Chaikin. I was the fifth studio <laughs> mate. And, uh, but I'd never been to the studio, but I was always at the shows, and, and I always uh, I remember them saying, gee, Bob was one of the least scary fans. That we had, and like, oh God, me! And I have long hair. I was a total freak. But uh, <clears throat> Bernie let me know that that Vaughn Baudet was doing a cartoon slideshow where he did all the voices of, oh, his, nice. of the. So we ran, we ran over there to to, to watch this, and uh, I'm sitting down. I got this older gentleman sitting next to me, and he's probably in his fifties at the time, maybe sixty. I don't remember, but. He kept laughing so hard and asking me who this guy was and what's his name. And I told uh -huh. him once and I told him twice. And, and he kept grabbing my knee. So I leaned over to Bernie and I go, what's going on with this guy over here? And he goes, oh, don't worry about him. He's beyond heterosexual. That's Isaac Asimov. <laughs> I'm sitting with Isaac Asimov. And Old worrying knee grabber Isaac yeah, Asimov. Yeah. But he was quite a grabby guy. I know yeah. that every woman in, that walked by him got a pinch, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But he wound up being, you know, we got to know each other. I mean, we weren't best friends, but he, he was, hey, Bob, whenever he saw me at a show. So that was a trip, you know, the giant mutton chops coming down the oh, hall. Fantastic. So. But yeah, so uh, then it went from Marvel to immediately to DC. Mm -hmm. uh, very soon after, I was a DC fan. And of course, when Swamp Thing came out, that to me was, it was a turning point because you, you know, there was there were no giant balloons on the covers. It was all right. about the art. Um, the story was serious. It wasn't. It, while it had fantasy element to it, it was very serious. Mm -hmm. And and then I find out years years later that Len Wein grew up in my town, which is totally weird. It's like you're from Levittown in New York. Yeah, it's like this is bizarre. Get me out of here, you know. But yeah. So and then I just started. Um, reading more diverse things really was when Diane and I met years later that I got further into the indie right. stuff. Uh, and you, you ebb and flow. You, you're you in to reading comics, then you're out for a while, and then you're right. back in. Because you had your love of film going at the same time, right? 
Yeah, I was. I made a lot of films before the house burned down, and then they all died in the house. They yeah. all got destroyed. And then after that, we made a movie that um, uh, feminists love to this day: um, the uh, Incredible Hulk meets the ever-loving Blue-eyed Thing. Mm. It's a ten-minute short that we made in the early '80s, and. Uh, we had a lot of fun making it. Like any project that you do, all you see are its blemishes and it's nightmarish. Oh right. my God, that line doesn't even work. It's not funny anymore. And then you go, oh, well, there are two moments that I can like be proud of and go, oh, hey, that, that was cool. But yeah, so there were all sorts of other things. I was in a couple of plays. Um, There's a couple of movies. <clears throat> there was a show, uh, a movie called, a short called... Uh, the surprise that aired on HBO way back when, and I'm, I'm a biker guy in the background, and nice. so just a whole mess of crazy stuff. And then music, I was in a mm -hmm. band for many, many years, so it was all kind of weaving in and out of all those kind of things all at the same time. At this time, was there a, was there a direction that you knew you wanted to go, or were you just having fun in every? thing that you found fun yeah music was the direction music and film were the direct I mean I wrote at least three papers about Stanley Kubrick that got people into the school of visual arts oh, nice. I didn't go but they got in uh, <laughs> <laughs> just the same paper resubmitted no no I wrote you know it was a span of time so okay. it was you know a couple of different at least each one was a different movie but then you always encompasses every film he makes he tries to make a technological advance right. in his filming so I would always talk about that as well and you know Barry Lyndon with the candlelight scenes and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff so anyway yeah so um, so music became the forefront uh, right after the house burned down that was it uh, I still had music all my comics had burned right. all my albums had burned but I could still sing I was a like a total psycho singer uh -huh. in my uh, in my room in the back of the house uh I'd come out after three albums in a row with a towel around my neck, and my parents would look at each other and go, there's something wrong with Bobby. Were you writing music at this point? No. No, I didn't start. I'm not, I'm not a very, uh, I'm not a technical musician, mm -hmm. uh, but my bass player and my uh, saxophone player uh, wrote most of the music when we were in our band, mm -hmm. and then I would just jump in. And you know, My brother was a poet, so we'd use his lyrics or I'd come up with some of my own, but most of it was written by them, and then I would just jump in and do the vocals. I was a lead singer of the... Yeah. But you couldn't really play your original music in, on Long Island back then, because all the clubs would dock you 50 bucks a song. How interesting. You had to play covers. So it was just, you know, bands doing Led Zeppelin. We did Tull. I was really good at doing Jethro Tull, uh, the vocals. Um, and there were, you know, bands doing all sorts of cover stuff, and... and uh, it was great. We had a you know a lot of fun. Played Hofstra University, a whole bunch of colleges. Did a lot of toga parties. <laughs> and then progressive rock star. I mean, we did everything. We did Procol Harum, right. all that kind of stuff. But progressive music started to fade, and disco started taking over. So then we did Rocky Horror because mm -hmm. we could live with ourselves doing 1950s rock and roll. Right. <laughs> so we did Rocky Horror with an entire cast. We had. Uh, the audition for <clears throat> for Rocky himself mm -hmm. was done by my bass player and his girlfriend in a men's bathroom stall, mm. if you catch my meaning. Right. We wanted to make sure he and could fill... I thought rock and roll was classy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wanted to make sure he could fill that gold lame uh, right. bathing trunks, you know. 
But uh, we had a lot of fun doing that, and and all. What role did you do? I was I, in keeping with Bob's duality. I was both riffraff, a very very large riffraff, and an amply properly plump meatloaf, because I could sing all that high register nice. stuff. So yeah, so it was a lot of fun. But all through that, through the conventions, da da da, you know, you're a tumbleweed and you're learning, and you realize, oh, that's a scumbag. Oh, there's an agent that just whipped us off. Right. Oh, wow, we really shouldn't sign a contract before we have a lawyer look at mm -hmm. it. So, you know, you live, you know, the school of hard knocks. You live and you learn. Um, and were these, were these also types that you, <laughs> that you could see in, in comic books later? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm... Is a comic know, book scumbag the same as a... Exactly. <laughs> They're exactly the same. Uh, there's a couple of tricky ones. Um, I don't know if you guys remember Bill Marks. No. He was Vortex Comics or okay. something. Oh, yeah. Canada. Well, they didn't pay the Hernandez brothers. Right. There you go. Or uh, Mr. X. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. That, that he literally was like two... If you met him in one instance, he was this Bill Marks. And if mm. you met him in another instance, you would never recognize. I mean, he was really two different people, at least only two that I knew of. But right. he was really, really quite this character who was tons of fun to hang out with, but you didn't want to do any work for him because you might not get paid, you know? So yeah, the, you know, I, I'm, I always extend a hand and say, hey, how are you? And I'm very nice to everybody, but people who know me well can kind of realize when they're around me and the person that I really don't want to be involved with, they can feel it. There is a, mm -hmm. a door there that just goes, very nice to see you. I very much have to leave right now. Right. You know. I think Brendan seen me like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's, that's probably important for anybody that, maybe that's an important trait for humans to have. Yeah, you got to be able to smell them yeah. and go, okay, I'm not, you know, I, I trust you as far as you let me. Mm. And the minute you don't, I'm out the door. I don't need to, you know. I, I've literally, I'm not going to name names, but I have... Two, two people that I got that I worked with at Dark Horse that swear to this day that I helped get them hired at Dark Horse. And I, I very politely say to them over and over, no, 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 you got there all on your own. Right. Don't tie my name to your brick in the ocean. <laughs> well, beyond that, I aggressively begged Diana, right. do not hire this person. They're horrible. Mm -hmm. They're insane. And then, of course, you know, we discover, oh, you meant insane. Yes, I used the word and I meant it. Right. Know, so, yeah. <laughs> now, was there a point where, like, kind of realizing what you're, you know, you're going to be in your 20s and you need to make money to live, um, was it the kind of openness of getting so quickly to know these folks already in the comics community that attracted to you to getting there or just kind of fall into it? Like, The uh, the weird thing about how I got started professionally was I'm gonna I'm gonna try and truncate truncate this down. Huge Jethro Tull fan, right? I go to Creation Con, not knowing that the guys running it are two years younger than me and that their parents are helping them run these shows. Mm -hmm. They ran the shows because they went to Suling Cons and said, "Shit, we can do this." So I'm going to Creation shows. I don't know who Adam and Gary are. Yeah. Um, you know, you're just going and having a good time. Mm -hmm. So I go to a show, and on the program book is Ian Anderson playing his flute, drawn by Tom Yates, who I knew prior 
just because I'm hanging out with everybody, and I didn't know he was a Tull fan. I said, oh, my God, Tom Yates, I know him. I see him at the shows. Eventually, we become very close. I was hanging out with Tom and uh, Tottlebin and Bissett while they were at the Kubert School. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we actually took a train and hung out with them. So anyway, I call Freeport, Long Island, and I think I'm talking to a 40-year-old man, and I'm talking to somebody who is two years younger than me, and I go, why the hell did you have Jethro Tull, Ian Anderson, on the cover of your comic book program book? Well, it's my comic book show, and I love Jethro Tull, and I can do what I want. And it was nice with that, but we talked for an hour, and it was like, oh, cool, man, great. Flash forward, I'm in a band. We put out an ad in the Good Times, which was the paper out on the island, and this person comes and auditions with a very nice keyboard set up, and his name is Adam, and Larry, the guy who turned me on to comics, who I went to all the conventions with, mm -hmm. is there during the rehearsal. We go, you're great, you're hired. Adam, what's your last name? Adam Malin of Creation Conventions. The minute he said Malin, Larry and I went, you mean you do those comic cons? He's like, right. yeah. So we hire Adam to be our keyboard player, and then as the band starts to kind of not do as well as we had hoped, Adam starts hiring me to work security, and then a guy named Walter Wang, <clears throat> who was one of the major distributors uh, from Staten Island, I can't remember the name, Comics Unlimited Limited, hmm. I'm not that old yet, um, he saw me working, and they had hired a lot of their friends to work, but he went over to Gary and said, you should hire this guy Shrek full-time, you're getting your money's worth, he's a hard worker, I was like, thank you, Walter. So that got me in there, and then all those years that I was going to these shows, I knew Carol Kalish, Jim Shooter, right. so it all kind of just flowed, and the next thing I know, uh, Creation laid me off, they fired me, um, and I was being uh, given a call by Carol Kalish to work at Marvel, because Lee Sapp kind of quit at the height of them beginning their con season, mm -hmm. and I knew where Archie Goodwin liked to sit. I knew all their travel yeah. things. So I got hired there, so I worked at Marvel for about a year. And then, having known everybody from Kimiko before there was a Kimiko, right. they hollered at me when I left Marvel, why don't you come work for Kimiko as a, as a marketing administrator guy? So it all was Diana already at Kimiko then? No, no, no. Diana, nobody wanted to hire Diana because she didn't have the right genitals. Mm, that's this is a boys club. Yeah. So when I got hired... Uh, they knew Diana, mm. they loved Diana, they thought she was great, but I got hired, and I keep going, eh, the girl, way smart, me dummy, she's smart. <laughs> uh -huh. And they finally hired her, right. and uh, much to her chagrin, she's like, oh God, I don't want to work with you. And, uh, so we had our times. But uh, we were living together in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, and a five-minute commute to Norristown, and, uh, and trying not to talk about work when we got home. Right. So but you were already dating at this time? Yeah, we were already dating. She had, uh, she's living in Oakland. She said Berkeley, but it was Oakland, right on the border. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it was Oakland. And uh, we dated by coastally for a long time, and then she decided to take a risk and move out to New York. I think that last, I think we were in around the corner from each other for four months, five months, I can't remember. The next thing I know, I was moving down and she, she was coming with me mm -hmm. to do the Kimiko thing and then she was either hired while we were moving down or very soon after. And she 
she made them, you know, just like every place that her and I went to, between the two of us, we got them kind of working a little more efficiently. And right. And were you them. bringing in artists that you knew from the conventions at this point? Yeah. We were, you know, I mean, I knew Matt Wagner before. Right. The Kimiko formed. Um, that they would all come to the shows that I did in Philly. Right. And the guy who was one of the owners of uh, Kimiko, Jerry Giovinco, in order for them to get a table, now remember I said the Hulkin thing movie? Mm-hmm. He was the thing. Okay. He made the thing out of foam rubber. And so before Kimiko existed, we would make him walk up and down the line and entertain the kids coming into the show. And then you got. Okay, now you guys get a free table. So okay. nice. Jerry had to go, hey kids, how you doing with a plastic cigar and act like a buffoon for an hour and a half. For me, it's, it's really fun to look at, um, especially with, with you and Diana Schutz, just the, um, the, the trajectory of your careers and what artists and writers that you worked with a long time and, and, and kind of like playing it like, uh, like, you know, like fantasy football almost and being like, oh, they're a dark horse now. Look who else is here. And oh, they're at DC. This guy's here. Yeah, no, we were, again, we are blessed with great relationships and really talented friends. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when I went to D.C. after leaving Oni, uh, I got uh, two phone calls to mm-hmm. my, my voicemail the very first day. One was from Pat Bastian calling on behalf of Dick Giordano because the two of them tried to hire me like three or four times right. to the point where he would call me and go, hey, do you want to fly out to New York We'll take you to a nice dinner, you'll turn us down, and you'll go back to Dark Horse and get a raise. Right. He's like, sounds great, Dick. Tell me when to go to the plane. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> it was that silly. So she said, you know, we want to congratulate you. We finally got you. And they mm-hmm. were in Florida and out of D.C. by then, but they felt like, wow, we finally got you. Um, the other call was from Neil Gaiman saying, mm-hmm. hi, Bob, this is Neil, and... Uh, Let's do something at DC together, which is like what? You right. know, just beyond belief. They still don't reprint that book, and I don't know why. It was a Green Lantern book that we did um, mm-hmm. with Taliban and all sorts of great people. Oh, that was me. the kind of after the action comics thing. Yeah, I can't with Eddie remember. Campbell in there too. Yeah, I think Eddie was in there. Yeah, I can't really remember that. So, had you already worked with Archie Goodwin at this point? I never worked with Archie okay. uh, except for doing creation shows. All right, but you, so but you I knew spent, him around Marvel. I knew him when he was at Marvel, yep. Uh, I'll tell uh, one, mar- one story I can't tell, because this wife gets very, very upset. Uh-huh. But uh, uh, I'm in London, me and Diana, with Kamiko, I think. And I hadn't seen Archie for several months. So, and you got to remember, we're in London. These people are very, very, you know, reserved and very polite. And, and Archie, of course, he kind of looks like Wally Cox, the old... Uh, character actor from the right. 50s and 60s and you know he's got the little stash and the glasses you know there's a little Woody Allen there I guess and uh, I'm coming out of a bar go figure and it's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon I'm coming down these you know like 4 or 5 steps and he's in the bottom you know the, the bottom of the steps a few feet back in the lobby and he sees me before I see him and he yells out Bob Shrek mm-hmm. and then he falls back onto the ground and just spread eagles and says Take me now! <laughs> and I jump, and I leap on top of him, and everyone else is just totally appalled, and, oh, these Americans, you know, we just freaked everybody out. He was uh, beyond smart, beyond intuitive, beyond, he just had it. And um, 
this one I can tell. I, I embarrassed him because we were hanging out in, I think it was Kansas City, Missouri. I think he's either from one of those two Kansas cities, I can't remember. But he, uh, we were hanging out, and he was holding court, and I was listening, and I broke in with, like, the stupidest thing you could ever say. It's like, man, uh, Archie, i got to say, if I could be, like, one-tenth as smart and as cool as you are, I don't know, I'm 21, 22, right. that would be, like, the greatest thing. And he says, well, that's very nice, Bob, but you'll never be able to fuck sheep like I do. <laughs> <laughs> totally making me look like an idiot because I deserved it and totally freeing himself of the compliment you know? <laughs> I was like wow see note to Shrek remember that line right. you know sound, um, yeah fun. he was an amazing guy and uh, just fun to be around and so full of and he he didn't sit there teaching you right you just got it you mm -hmm. know, as he went along so um, so at, at Comico when you were when you were working you guys did a lot of licensed stuff Yes. And what what was your what was kind of what was your uh, end of work there? Well, I, I began as a, what they called me a, an administrative uh, director, and really it was a pool, a think tank. Uh, we were all kind of saying things. Hey, this is interesting. This is cool. Mm -hmm. This is great. I mean, we all love Johnny Quest, but Diana was the one who went. You know, Doug Wildey's alive. We went who. Because right. we didn't realize, oh yeah, Wildy, um, and she got us on the path of going to Doug and getting covers before mm -hmm. we even started the book. You know, so yeah, so we all knew things, but it's, it was a collective. Uh, having known Arthur Adams since he was very young, I think he was seventeen. They all say they were in right. their twenties. The long red hair. <laughs> yeah, he had the long red hair and he had the big Adams apple. Uh, and if you didn't, if you knew him for ten minutes, you knew just like me. You don't have doesn't take long to know Godzilla and Jethro Tull. That's right. it, you know. With Arthur, it was one thing. It was Gumby. You mm -hmm. know, you got Gumby immediately. Every book he drew for Marvel later would have Gumby in the crowd. Right. You know, so it wasn't until we had met Bob Burden socially. We weren't working with him, but we met Bob Burden that a few months later we were thinking about oh, Gumby, Gumby, maybe we can do a Gumby book. And no bullshit, you know how your minds kind of connect mm -hmm. in the ether? I was in the kitchen, she was in the living room, and one of us said, do you know who could do a Gumby book, like Justice? And the other said, Bob Burden. And we both looked at each other and went, yes! Right. And off we went. Uh, so... There was a lot of editorial stuff that I was doing, and then at the end, towards the end of the the Kimiko days, the first I, I edited. So was that? I'm trying to remember. Is it Arthur Adams written by Bob Burden? Yeah, Arthur did the art, and Bob Burden wrote okay. the Gumby. And then the Just second the one, Summer Fun Special, or Summer Fun, and the Winter spot Fun was uh, Steve Purcell. He wrote. Oh the right, second, right. But the, Arthur drew Sam and Max Payne. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. fantastic stuff. So yeah, so it was all that kind of you know stuff, and uh, we did a book called Blood Scent. It was a story that my brother wrote, a short story that was basically just adapted mm -hmm. uh, by Gene Colan, and that was another great moment because I'd known Gene, loved his work, and I always equated him with my brother's horror writing and my brother's horror poetry that he wrote, and I always felt the connection between all of them and Richard Matheson. Mm -hmm. Never said that to Gene Colan, handed him my brother's story, sent it to him. <clears throat> Get a call from Gene going, I love this story and I want to do it, Bob. You know, your brother's a very good writer. Uh, all I can think of is Richard Matheson. 
Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my God, this is better than actually doing the book. You know, it was such a great thing. So I, you know, plus my editorial skills, I think, came from being nine years old and being my brother's soundboard. Right. He would write stories and I would go, yay, she wouldn't eat cherries, remember? Uh -huh. uh, two hours ago, she, she doesn't like fruit or whatever, you know. Right. I would always be his continuity cop or so his... older brother. Yeah, my middle brother, Dean, yeah. Beyond a continuity cop, I would say, oh, you know, that sounds forced or mm -hmm. just, you know, so I, I kind of had that in me um, at an early age. And that's why I was attracted to writers and artists mm -hmm. and, you know, people like Archie Goodwin and, and whatnot. So, yeah, so Kamiko was a lot of fun and it was a lot of uh, a great mix. Max Headroom was mine. Oh, right. But we never got it out. We, we penciled. They, Panda Brothers penciled the whole thing. Oh, Mike Barron. I wasn't even aware the Panda Brothers were working there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had already worked with them. How tied to the TV series was that? It was absolutely. The guy who created Max Headroom put, I believe he put Kamiko the Comic Company in the contract. Mm -hmm. when he sold it to the big corporation that he sold it to that eventually went to Coca-Cola. Right. But before it was another company. And he was a mad guy. He was a marketing guy. So I, I saw a picture this big in either Newsweek. I'd never heard of Max Hedrum. I just saw a little picture of it and went, that's cool. And I contacted this person over in, in England, in London, and then he forced Kimiko in there. Mm -hmm. And we were great. Everything was approved. It was totally great, totally hilarious story by Mike Barron, uh, to, to the point where it's ultra-violent. He's, mm -hmm. he's held up. He's become real, like he's become part of the earth, only it's a, neg it's a bad guy, a TV show guy who becomes real, and Max Hedrum has to kill him, stop him. Uh -huh. So he's, he's in this McDonald's, and he's killing all these people in McDonald's. And then Max Hedrum, somehow his head goes into this guy's head, so he start, the mm -hmm. guy starts shooting his own head off <laughs> to get rid of Max Hedrum. It was genius. And the Panda Brothers drew it, penciled mm -hmm. it. It was going to be 3D by Ray Zone. Oh, right. And Coca-Cola got it. And just killed it. Oh man! Was there a three D Gumby as well? That was not us. Okay. That was the. I say this with heavy quotes. The <laughs> genius of Steve Shanus okay. of Blackthorn, because he did the gum. He did three D GI Joe. Oh, Blackthorn, yeah. Blackthorn, I had and he screwed Marvel bad. I mean, I didn't mind. He did Gumby in three D. Right. You don't. You don't adapt Gumby cartoons mm -hmm. into three D comics. I mean, how boring can you get? Sorry, Steve, but how boring can you get? You do a new Gumby story, right. and you make it, you know, work in comics. But I give him props for stealing that 3D license from around Marvel uh -huh. on G.I. Joe, because I, all right, brother, you, you made a good move, you know. <laughs> so where, where were you going after Comico? Well, actually, it was pronounced Kimiko. Kimiko. It had the dot. You the probably rising, corrected me on that at least ten that's times. That's all right. It had the, you know, the, the Japanese Rising Sun oh, right, logo right. years ago. <laughs> um, uh, well, Kimiko just died, and that was I. I ended my career there with two issues of Plastic Forks in the can. I okay. was the editor of, Eddie, of uh, Ted McKeever's Plastic Forks. Right. And what was that in pre uh, pre? Um, I'm spacing on his book now. Eddie Current? No. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Eddie Current was. Let me see. Yeah, Eddie Current was first. That's okay. what flipped me and Diana out. Right. And then we wanted to do another book with him, and we you met him in San Diego. how much that was influenced by manga until years later. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. You know, he was a, a courtroom 
illustrator. No, I didn't. Yeah, he looked when I first met him. Me and Diana met him. We knew immediately who he was. We never saw a photo of him. Mm-hmm. We we're in San Diego at the old hotel in Barcadero. He was holding court with three or four people. We had already fallen in love with him over the phone. I imagine him looking just like Max Headroom, actually. He looked like a bank teller. Okay. He just looked like a bank teller. <laughs> now he's all buff and everything. And but we walked up and we knew immediately. We went, "You're Ted McKeever," and he went, "You're Bob and Diana," mm-hmm. and we were in love. We all just got together like beyond belief. So I was the editor of Plastic Forks, and I had to make the call when Kimiko folded. Mm-hmm. And I swear to you, I mean, I've had very emotional because you become very good friends with these people. They're right lifelong friends one of the emotional most emotional moments was i had to call him and tell him that kamika was under and uh the book wasn't going to happen we were on the phone for under a minute and we both literally began crying and yeah. and he, i said i'll call you tomorrow and the, then the next day i think i waited two or three days and i think we got a 10 minute call done before it got too weird to talk anymore right. And eventually, you know, it wound up at Marvel. But it hurt his career because he, he had to get a new contract. And, mm-hmm. da, 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 and yeah. eventually it came out at Marvel. And it's one of my favorite was, books. The Kimiko stuff, it was really sudden, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. We had an inkling because Diana was doing all the uh, the numbers. They, gave, they bought her a computer so that she could figure out. Or was it a special program? Because I remember we had computers... And we used to torture the editors at DC and go, "How's your Smith and Wesson?" Because <laughs> DC would not allow computers. They, they just could. gave them guns, is what you said. Yeah, they they just didn't want. To, they didn't. They were afraid to be able to control the information. Yeah. So they had to use typewriters, and we were like, "Haha, we have whatever it was we were using at the time." But yeah, and then they gave her a special program, and she learned how to use this thing, and she started doing the numbers, and and we died because we went on the newsstand, and the newsstand is just. Yeah, it's just foul. Uh, well, it's so, a returnable thing, right? Yeah, which 90% of your, your books are being taken away from the back of the 7-Eleven and being put into the comic book stores at a buck less. Right. Yeah. Thanks, you know, caught several retailers doing that. Um, so, yeah, it was it was very sudden and it was horrible. We were already planning to go to Hilton Head, Diana and I, with her parents and her sister, and we didn't have a job. And we're like, well, I guess we're still going on vacation anyway, because, you know, maybe it's going to be a longer vacation. Right. And then things happened. I we I went to uh, Graffiti Designs. Uh, we were going to start a new publishing company there. And while Bob Chapman and I are still the v- beyond best of friends, mm-hmm. it was a rough ride. It didn't work out between us. Was that I, when they like did the Mobius hardcovers? And... It was probably uh, after. Okay. Um, he was the first Michael Keaton Batman was coming out. Yeah. So I found myself with a tape gun a lot of my time there. Mm. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? This I did when I was 19 at the yeah. printer shop. I was shop. wearing a lot of those t-shirts back then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were selling a lot of those t-shirts back then. Cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, talk about a great marketing campaign. I mean, that was when Warner Brothers was on. It was just the bat symbol that was yeah. it you didn't have to sell it any more than that here it is now go see it you know so anyway so that lasted eight what I always call because I was living in Anaheim Hills which I used to call Dachau because I loved it so much 
Uh, eight of the worst months of my life. I hated every. I hated sidewalks that they had occasionally put installed, and, and I, was, I hated everything about it. Diana sat by the pool, uh, editing books for Kimiko, while they kind of shambled along, and um, getting checks that were not clearing. Hmm. So uh, I interviewed at Disney, which that would have been a f- fun ride, uh, and then. Because of good friends like John Kukasakis, Dave Stevens, who would call occasionally to Graffiti Designs and hear the voice of the dead. Graffiti Designs. I'm like, oh, Shrek's going to kill himself. Uh-huh. Yeah. I had known Dark Horse, those guys, prior to that, and they said, you should hire Shrek. Once again, they didn't hire Diana because she was a girl. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, no, 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 her, her, her. And then eventually they hired Diana as well. So that was that. Then I went to Dark Horse for seven and a half years, and then I quit because it got crazy there. And I'm always happy to tell this story. Melanie Chadwick, who I've known for a thousand years, and she's a great gal. She was our editor-in-chief at the time. And Lou Bank had written this horrible email about why I am the epitome of arrogance and unresponsiveness, which were two terms that everybody used at the time to describe Mike. Richardson, mm-hmm. because he was so busy, he wasn't, you know, he was doing barbed wire, whatever movie. Yeah. So, but I was the one, because of some mix-up about a piece of art from Gary Gianni that upset Jeff Darrow. It's just a bunch of bullshit. So she read me this long riot act from Lou Bank, and I just waited for her to finish. Because if I were editor-in-chief, I would have taken that email, shoved it up. <clears throat> Lou Bank's yeah. patootie. I swear to God, I stood up and I said, Melody, no disrespect, but fuck you, I quit. Mm-hmm. And I walked out and I went, wow. I, I stood up and I said, no disrespect, but mm-hmm. fuck you, I quit. Uh-huh. That's awesome. Pretty good. And I did, I quit. And then <clears throat> a few months later, Joe and I, Joe Nosbach and I decided to start Oni Press. Now, where did, where did Joe come from before that? Again, it's all this crazy trail. I've known Joe since he's 14. In San Diego Comic-Con, he walks up to the table and he tells me that, he says, hey, uh, where's Matt Wagner? I kind of remember being a little different and asking me if I was Matt Wagner, but I'll defer to him. Mm -hmm. He said, and I said, that's Matt Wagner over there. And he he was a big Matt Wagner fan, big Mage fan. And, you know, you do these shows, you're mostly meeting young males. And I meet a lot of them. Not all of them are people, you know, some of them aren't too bright. Right. And Joe was very bright. He was a very smart kid. He was 14 going on 30, you know. So we just headed off. Hey, hey, how you doing? Ba-da-da. Every show, and then eventually it becomes a friendship. And then when I was at Dark Horse, I actually hired him to be in my marketing department. Right. Uh, I think Ted Adams had already left, but I had hired Ted Adams. Mm-hmm. prior to him. Um, Ted was amazing. Was Jamie S. Rich working with you at that time too? Not in the marketing department, but later on in okay. editorial, when I went to editorial. But soon after I hired Joe to be in my marketing department, I left and uh, Ronnie Noyes took over, and the name should warn you. Uh, she took over marketing and fired Joe, I think, Two months after he started, I can't remember, but it was very bad. Joe had a had a uh, some physical problems and mm-hmm. he couldn't get out. Coming back to 
from Houston to, and she just fired him while he was in the hospital. Hmm. Classy. So anyway, so yeah, Joe and I knew each other for years, and then right. Before we get into Oni, I yeah, want yeah. to talk more about Dark Horse Presents specifically, and sure. and uh, and and I have a lot of interest in in your connection to Paul Pope and you bringing him into Dark Horse. Okay, that one is a good one. Uh, I always preface this with, you know, there are friends, and then there are really good friends. And I'm just joking, Joe Nosmack. I'm just joking. I love Joe. Uh, but he walked up to me at San Diego one year and went, and I can do a really good job. He's like, hey, man. Um, he sounds a little bit like Kermit. Uh-huh. Hey, man. Um, you know, there's this guy, Paul Pope. He's really good. You should check him out. I'm like, okay. Well, Shannon Stewart, mm-hmm. he walks over with the Ballad of Dr. Richardson in hand and says, I bought this for you, you should read this. This guy's really cool. Okay, cool, thanks. Get on the plane, go home from, uh, where the hell was I? Yeah, I was at Dark Horse. And so it was not a long flight, but I sat down and read the Ballad of Dr. Richardson and I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away. And I called him that Monday or Tuesday like some horrible Hollywood agent going, Hey, kid, uh-huh. you got to work with me. This is great. And we were I was the first one to get him a paycheck. Nice. And he was about 23 then? He was a young guy, yeah. And, um, and was I mean, it was a stunning piece of work. I mean, Paul has this ability. He's done it in several of his books where he makes you hear things mm-hmm. by his words and his pictures. You actually hear sounds. And then he did that to me in... Battle of Dr. Richardson. I was like, oh my God, it was pretty sure it was a subway station where this guy was playing some kind of instrument and you could hear it. And I was like, Paul, how'd you do that? So we did the one trick ripoff right. as uh, monthly installments, eight page monthly installments. In was Sin City started at this point? Sin City had already started, yeah. I didn't okay. take over DHP until years after it yeah, started. That's quite a long time. Yeah, I marketed Sin City and Frank was like, don't spend any crazy money, this might not work. I was like, okay, so I didn't up up the marketing campaign. I just it was very easy to just say, Dark Horse presents Frank Miller's Sin City. Okay, thank you. you right, know, and it worked. I think. So we just Diana just put out that weapon called the big damn Sin City. Oh yeah, it weighs forty pounds. You can so. kill somebody with it. That's a tri-state area phone book over there. Pages. I have no Too idea. <laughs> there are stories in there I don't even remember editing. Because I'd heard a bunch of Pope stories about your interaction with him. Yeah. From other people. Yeah. So you can, like, there's a, there's a story about you calling his mom. Is yes, that... he hates this. <laughs> Please, I don't want to tell it. He hates it. <laughs> Paul, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, the funniest thing is that. Uh, Recently, a couple of folks hit first, second, uh, a few years back while they were doing Battling Boy, would pull me aside at SCAD, Savannah right. College. How do you deal with this guy? How do you do this? And I was like, well, I don't know. And then somebody else, like Diana, goes, well, really? What yeah. happened was, I was like, oh, no. But he was good most of the time. And, and this one time, I had to get the book out. You know, it was a monthly anthology. And he uh, he was starting up. Uh, he was asking his mom for financing mm-hmm. for horse press to get serious. He had a girlfriend that was acting as his secretary. Right, and, and he had a, a didn't he have a false publisher? Oh, he was horse press. Yeah, he was. Well, I don't know if he had a false He's, publisher. He would send letters out right. from a different name. Right, he had a false publicist. Okay, that sent that he created that got him the quote 
from Will Eisner. Oh, yeah. And Ed Brubaker and all those other indie guys, oh, he's such an egomaniac. It's like, no, he's smarter than you uh-huh. are, that's all. You just hate him because he's smarter. Um, so anyway, his girlfriend stopped being my rat. Mm-hmm. She was no longer answering my calls. My rat was dry, you know, dried up. So like, what am I going to do? He's not answering my calls, and I can't get her to respond, and i got to get this fucking book out. And I knew that his mom was a doctor of some sort. I can't How remember. How far that. into the winter group off was this? It was pretty deep. I think we were like the sixth or seventh mm-hmm. episode. And he was trying to get money out of her to do this thing. You know, he's telling me too much because I knew too much, and now I could use it against him. So I called her up. I got her. Whatever she was doing, they interrupted whatever she was doing. She got on the phone, and she said, you know, how can I help you? I said, well, look, I I understand that your son Paul is thinking about, you know, getting at Well, I understand that you're thinking about investing in his company, and I just got to tell you, he's acting really uh, irresponsibly and unprofessionally. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a boss who's going to... I could get fired. I, I have to get this book out, and I'll try as I might. He's not answering my calls. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. The girlfriend won't get back to me. I, I just need... I, I can't let this happen. I, I have to have this book in. I have to have the pages in. And she said, well, I'm very sorry, and I'm very embarrassed, and... Uh, let me see what I can do. And within moments, I got another call, and it was this time from Paul saying, uh, "Hey man, uh, you know, don't ever call my mom again." <laughs> and I said, "Well, don't ever hide from me ever again. Uh, right. I need this book out." And I did get the pages. Book didn't ship late, and I am forever grateful. I got to meet mom years later. She's, you know. I need a picture of her. I need to get framed and put it up on my wall. And Paul hates this, and I'm sorry, Paul, but it happened, and uh, I'm not proud of it. But well, yeah, I guess I am a little proud of it. Uh, I got it done, and that's all. You know, that's what you got to do. Working on something like Dark Horse Presents, and also doing all these other comics, you have to kind of find a lot of different skills to get these pages out of focus. I know I'm just we're sitting here with Brandon, who's um, timeliness isn't always. <laughs> it makes him unique in the uh, industry, though. I, I have <laughs> never late. I have no. The problem with me is I, I watch the numbers too much, and I realize that me being late doesn't change them. Yes and no. Uh, it's not just the numbers so much. It's from my perspective, it's a commitment to the fan. It's a commitment oh, to yeah, the create the people too. that are eating. The retailer right. Taylor certainly says the hell with it, and that's why the numbers are as low as they are. Because they look at a huge portion mm-hmm. of the industry and go, I don't care. Because the odds are that the book's not coming out. Right. So you're always going to have that low number. If everybody did deliver, if uh, Diamond left out the people that didn't act professionally, I called it camouflage. I called it clutter. You know, here was Kimiko getting book out mm-hmm. every month, five, six, eight, ten books a month. And yet we were, you know, it's just like working at D.C. Mike uh, Carlin, who I love dearly, would yell at all of editorial because Eddie Berganza is always late. Uh-huh. Take him out to the shed and beat the crap out of him. Leave me <laughs> out of it, you know. So uh, it's the same thing, whereas the entire retail, I mean, Graffiti Designs and Oni did a survey through Diamond to find out what the percentage was of all their entire by buyers, you know, mm-hmm. all the retailers, what percentage of those retailers are actually purchasing our product? 
You want to guess? I'm, I'm guessing it's, well, with those, what was it, 10? That's being nice. I think it was 7%. Because I know from my end of things that you're essentially dealing with, there's just a couple stores that can make or break you. Right, yeah. But that it doesn't have to be that way, because good product is good product. So if right. you get the good product out on time, and you get, right, and you get the retailer to realize that you're going to be there, and the product is worthwhile, you've gotten several nominations for your work, right? Well, that's, that's another conversation. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it is another, but still, there's a community that enjoys and appreciates it, right? Right. It's not the same. The readership and the sales are not the same. There's two different things going on here. There's secondhand yeah. use. There's all these other things happening, yeah, yeah, and definitely. it's it's not fair that that certain companies allow people who abuse the system to come back every month and lie, and that's the result of why so many of the independents are treated as poorly as they are. Right, right. So yeah, no, it was balanced and crazy. And, you know, people are always, you know, you're in there. So there's Megan Kelso. Oh, my God, look at that. That's so cool. Renee French, you know. Oh, my God, she's amazing, you know. Uh, you try to be as diverse as you can at the time to get all these uh, all these voices going on. Uh, Roberta Gregory. There were all these people that were happening, you know, as I took over, like, you know, that wouldn't have appeared in DHP prior yeah. because other people's focuses were more... Um, right. more superhero-y or more science fiction-y and I'm just an equal opportunity guy I try to do is there a lot of I risk in, in, in when, when you're working for diversity are you, are you ever trying to pick books that, that you know specifically just aren't for you to put out yeah sure they were, they, they, I would have people bring me like hey what's you know how about this person yeah. and I go well, I don't really get it but you get it, right? And they go, yeah, well, here's why I like it. And it's like, okay, well, let's try it. But most of, I'd say probably 85% of what I put in there I enjoyed. Right. Personally, I thought, I found worth. And I thought, but there was always something in there where I'd go, God, I don't, you know. And I, I loved uh, Brian Sendelbach. I don't think I ever got it, but I loved it. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Scott Musgrove. I don't know if you ever saw Fat Dog Mendoza. But uh, just oh, yeah, yeah. very da-da crazy stuff, you know, and him I got. You know, Brian was, I think he did The Smell of Steve yeah. was the name of it. Oh, right. And that was I, his pen name. The yeah. newspaper comics that ran in The Stranger in Seattle. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, but I like both of those guys, and I, I loved Scott's work. Mm -hmm. I found Brian Semmelbach's kind of intriguing, but I never really got it, you know. Right. So, yeah, um... Yeah, one of the works you had in there, uh, Dave Cooper's Dan and Larry. Yes, is for me. It's like one of the an incredibly important comic, and I'm just wondering about the challenge of getting that in there because I mean you've got the character with like the tiny boner. Yeah. Um, the the. And you're talking about Dan and Larry, which is basically his experience working with, for with Barry Blair. Barry Blair. Barry Blair yes. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, Mike Richardson had no idea what was going on. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. He got mad at me later on. Right. How did you? What did you? I was like, I, I didn't know it was about that. Right. And I'm wondering too, because I, I hear this a lot, and this is something that I that I threw around. But and in a large company, like, do you think that Mike Richardson uh, is always able to publish, or even has an interest in publishing books that he reads himself or or wants to read? 
Well, let me start with... these larger publishers. Yeah. It doesn't have to single out him, but... No, let me, well, let me just start with there is nobody in this industry who loves comics more than Mike. Nobody. Is he a bit... Is he easily distracted? Yes. Uh, I used to say, I remember, does anybody have any more fishing tackle? I'm going into a meeting with Mike. I want, I want to have shiny stuff to keep his attention. He is very easily distracted, and that's just the way his mind works. He's just... He's all over the place. But he, he knows and adores and understands it from its roots to today. Um, yet he is distracted. So there are things that I would bring to DHP back in the 90s that right. we'd go, what the hell is this? Like, shut up, it's good. Don't worry about it. Right. You know, we're, we're doing fine. We're selling, I don't know what the new sales were, but they were way better than most, Marvel, uh, most DC books right now. But, yeah, I mean, he still tries to, I think, find out what's hiding out there. But he's got a whole staff to, to bring that to him. I wonder, I guess my, I'm coming from the idea that uh, it's got to be hard to run a company where licensing is such an important thing and enjoy all the work all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, even for me as an editor... It's like Fanographics putting out Crack Core and being like, do you like that as much as Love and Rockets? Well, uh, hey, you know, Fanographics spend a long time poo-pooing what we did at Kimiko. Right, and I and don't mean to disparage Crackcore. I understand, but, you know, when times got tough, Will Eisner sat there and said, look at this, they're pornographers. Right. You know, I, I don't know if Gumby and Star Blazers was the equivalent of pornography. I don't think you've tried to masturbate to those. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I, I might have, but no. So, you know, I mean... It's real easy when it's easy. When you sell X amount of copies of the Comics Journal, yeah. and then you don't, right. and then you immediately go running. What I always call my favorite moment of their licensed books was, uh, you know, the King Kong covers with the McGillagorilla Gorilla interiors. Uh -huh. I'm sorry, but he's a nice guy, but those were really not King Kong interiors. Right. I'm blanking on his name right now. The guy who drew the interiors. I think there's there's a fair amount Simpson. Of, yeah. What was the, uh, they did the Don the, Simpson? an X-Men... Yeah. Oh. Index thing. Yeah, I mean, like, just they—they they have some some points that definitely tarnish. Yeah, the the legacy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And again, you know, don't shit on me for getting Eisner nominations on what I think were very good licensed books. You know, I'm in this situation right now, and people are like, oh, licensed books—they're crap. You know, having done both, mm -hmm. licensed books have a reward when you can sit there and go well I'll give you Dave Cooper we did Godzilla with Dave Cooper right well I mean I, I certainly don't think licensed books have to be crap that's they right they tend to be a lot of the time yes they do because it's a machine and you want right. to feed the monster but if you take your time like Johnny Quest mm -hmm. uh, or this Godzilla story I did Brubaker and uh, John Lewis wrote Godzilla mm -hmm. for DHP and Dave yeah. Cooper drew it right and I had the licensor, Saperstein, his last name was, hey, he got the script and said, this is funny, Godzilla's not funny. And I almost died on the phone. I was like, have you seen a Godzilla movie? Oh, God. I felt like the time that uh, the Image Comics guys told me that I was making their logo look like a penis. <laughs> yeah. Hmm, really? You start to wonder if the guy on the other end of the phone is covering it up so you don't hear him laughing. Exactly. You know, it's like, and I, and I said... Godzilla versus a smog monster. I rest my case. Right. He flies backwards. I mean, you're absurd. I mean, that he, he gets shot in the nuts by Ghidra. He falls over pagodas. 
And, and the smog, <laughs> on the smog monster, every time he appears, the music goes, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> no, it's not funny. So we got it done, and I'm proud of that. I'm like, wow. And I, you know, I just did this new Godzilla, which I'm very proud of because we got it done on time, mm-hmm. and I think it looks great, and it's a fun little story, but I did it in three and a half months. I got a 72-page Godzilla story out in three and a half months. That's not easy. So there are challenges, right. and there are rewards of being able to go, or Gumby. We got an Eisner Award for Gumby. Fuck. I mean, that's impossible. So... It's not all poo-poo, but yes. But I can also say that there's a lot of crap out there that isn't licensed. Oh, certainly. You know, there's a tsunami of stuff. Like, well, you know, I always say, you know, there's. I'm sure there's going to be a comic book out next month that is geared to appeal to uh, 90-year-old nuns who build Swiss watches and drive Maseratis. Mm-hmm. I actually have a big Mobius thing that's, that's <laughs> from a, a Cartier watch thing. <laughs> it's, it's insane. So anyway, I'm rambling. Right. Stuff. I, well, I think licensed comics is such like an arbitrary term too because like big two comics are licensed comics. Like a Superman comic is a licensed comic. Right. It's just that they, that license isn't getting transferred from DC to someone else. Right. When they're not happy like Marvel's always going to have Star Wars now, probably, unless yeah. they really screw the pooch. they got to really screw the pooch, yeah. Um, get kicked out of Disney? Hmm. <laughs> it's like the first Star Wars. That, uh, the powder guy just like sitting at his desk right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the first Star Wars that Dark Horse did. It was a Marvel book. Uh-huh. And Richardson was smart because he knew that Rick, uh, Tom Veach opened his mouth and let uh, Cam, uh, Cam Kennedy find out that he was getting a bigger royalty than Cam. So Cam went like this. He just said, well, I'm not drawing it anymore until you give me my fair share. Mike went to, Mar- to uh, Lucas, got Indiana Jones, and he sat there right. and did Indiana Jones. And then when Marvel let the license go, Mike went, knock, knock, knock. Cam, I will pay you whatever you want. Brought the book over. Tom Veach did a wonderful job giving that, that voice, that yeah. Lucas voice. Cam's art was amazing. I was given the, the marketing reins, like, you better not make this bomb. You better sell it. And he, Mike Richardson wanted me to make a poster for Star Wars. Why would a poster in a comic book shop motivate anybody to buy one more Star Wars book? Uh-huh. It's pre-sold. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it sold 350,000 copies. And we saved ten grand on a poster. Yeah, I didn't get a ten grand raise. You know, it would have been nice. Yeah. Give me five. Uh-huh. But you know, so it can be good. It just often isn't. So I'll shut up. That one's interesting too because it's kind of like a kind of like a kicking open the door type thing when you compare that to the previous Marvel Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. Too. It was gorgeous. It really captured it. And it had really like psychedelic. Yeah, colors. colors like, yeah, it was all cam. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. Ones are, it was all they cam. Look like uh, Star Wars in black light, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he went and did the Light and Darkness War later at Epic right. or something, right? I remember that one? I can't remember who wrote that, but yeah. And Cam is amazing, sweet guy. Yeah, so, I guess that was a. And I even enjoyed the old. Sometimes I just enjoy comics because they're crazy. I'm always bringing up the. Um, the Terminator comics that now put out. Oh yeah, before yeah. Terminator Two came out. Yeah, yeah. With uh, good Terminators from the moon and all these things. <laughs> it's hilarious stuff. Yeah. yeah. Good old Tony Caputo. 
when they went under, we all had an experience with Tony Caputo, and and I think it was I forget where it was, but I have the original upstairs. Uh, Evan Dorkin gave it to me, but there was a gravestone. It's like uh, uh, something like he's he's dead now or something with uh-huh. the now logo. Nice. Tony Caputo. I was really now. hoping when Marvel now started that Ralph Snart would show up. Apparently, he didn't get much REM sleep because uh, of certain things that he was doing, abusing his body. Because mm. I think Wheatley, yeah, Wheatley and Apple actually wanted their money. I think they stayed in his place. Uh, he, he just walks around and doesn't sleep and's like, okay, where you want to go? So, am, am I right to assume that you starting Oni was a lot of you kind of uh, pushing for freedoms that you might not have had at Dark Horse? Yeah. Yeah, I was tired of the, the the move to movies as being the be-all and end-all, and here I am at Legendary. <laughs> right, and I mean, Oni's gone that way a lot, too. Absolutely. I mean, we started Oni on the opposite. Like, mm-hmm. we don't want your movie rights. We would like a taste if anything happens and right. if we're part of a deal, but it was not, from my recollection, wasn't even in the contract. I imagine that's a slippery slope of, of being like, oh, we're falling into this giant check, though. Yes, yeah, no, the money was, was getting tougher and tougher. I mean, here we were saying we don't want to do this, but we're doing it with Kevin Smith and Clerks, which right. is a movie, and it did really well. But it was, yeah, it was, it was me, uh, myself, and Joe uh, sitting for a few months going, gee, what are we going to do? Uh, the transition for that, though, was funny because <clears throat> I tried to get Kevin Smith in Dark Horse Presents, but Mike Richardson wouldn't have it because I sat down with him once and he said, Bob, I'm not going to publish his work. Kevin Smith, I have three daughters, and Kevin Smith promotes drug abuse. And I swear to God, I said to him, Mike, <laughs> Kevin Smith does not promote drug abuse. He merely talks about it. Life promotes drug right. abuse. He didn't think it was funny, and I That's had to leave. because I cannot think of Dark Horse. I, I feel like you could find as many Dark Horse comics prior to that. that... Absolutely. Dan and Larry, for crying out loud. That ought to promote some drug abuse. Well, couldn't you just do Dark Horse comics for stoners? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we were doing Eno and Plum. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Terry LeBan is a giant joint. Right, you know? right. This goes back to my being like, are you sure Richardson reads these books? <laughs> exactly. Unbelievable. So anyway, um, when I quit, Joe and I were sitting there, and Joe kept kicking me, call Kevin, call Kevin, because I had already met him in Atlanta, mm-hmm. me and Shannon and, and uh, Scott Mosier, all Was of that. Was that through a convention? Yeah, we went to one of my only Dragon Con, well, maybe two or three Dragon Cons. A little too sexy for you. Oh, God. <laughs> I wanted horse blinders, just yeah. so I could make it through the hall. It's like, you know, I have a mirror. I it's enough right. bad news. I don't need any more bad news. You know, <laughs> it's women with hair on their backs and guys. With, you know, and what I get at this, you know, like the, you know, because I'm a big heifer, I get more grossed out by these people who are thin who think that they should be half naked, and they look like buffoons. They look like your nipples are too small. That isn't an ass. Please stop. <laughs> Just cover yourself. You know. Your legs are, you look like a stilt machine. I mean, just horrible. So anyway, yeah, I made it through that. We sat in this room and we talked. So whatever it was, a few years later, Joe's like, call him, call him. Well, I found out later that Kevin was sitting over in Jersey going, where the hell did Shrek go? How come Shrek didn't call me anymore? So I literally called him. That day, uh, he said, I'm booking you a flight. You're going to get on a plane tomorrow. You're coming out to Jersey. And I did. 
And plus, I was leaving the horse. And while I was mostly out again, because when you're bisexual, right. you go in and out of the closet. I was with Diana for mm-hmm. a bazillion years. And you don't walk around going, oh, well, I'm living with her, but I do like Dick. I mean, you just don't really had that opportunity. Right. And so, Is that something that even came out in your professional work at that time? It started to when her and I divorced. Okay. Yeah. Uh, to the point where certain individuals were so giddy on outing me, who will not go named, mm-hmm. but uh, they were very ready to go. This and is like a really vindictive... Yeah. Yeah, like, ah, oh, you know, let's do this. Let's let, you know, I'm going to... And one person was going to do it in his comic... And the other was going to do in in his magazine. Oh, that Ralph Snart issue. That's right. So um, I was kind of treading water and trying to get there. So when I went to Kevin and I was no longer... And his movies, I was like... Uh, Scott Mosier's gal picked me up at the airport. And I was just like, well, you know, I like to suck dick. Blah, 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 you know, and I was just like, I'm gay and bisexual. And I, you know. So and she's like, very nice. Shut up. You know, relax. And we had a great, great time. And I found out about his brother. And da, da, da. so, um, so that's how Oni kind of started. Kevin's gay brother. Huh? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was unaware. Um, so yeah. So that's you know, and Kevin was really cool. And then w- the one thing that we didn't do was I didn't go reach out to people that I already worked with at Dark Horse. Right. We just put the shingle up. Mm-hmm. And then I get a call from Harris Miller, who at the time was Frank Miller's uh, agent, mm-hmm. lawyer, whatever you want to call him. And he said, Frank would like to give you a book. So we were starting with Frank Miller and Kevin Smith. Right. And and, uh, and you knew Frank Miller initially from when you were marketing at Dark Horse? Before. Okay. Um, I'll tell this story real quick. I know that you've only got so much time, but... Uh, oh, no, we're fine. All right. You eat up your whole day. Uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> so, hope you have a cock for us. Yeah, no, that's fine. These pull out. No, they don't. Look at this. Uh, so years ago, again, I'm old, so this was a long time ago, and I was still at Creation, and Gary and Adam said to me, here, here's a show at the Sheridan in New York, which actually winds up being right around the corner from where I worked at DC years later. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to run a show. You book it. You get the guests. So I said, wow, cool. All right. I want Harlan Ellison because he's really cool and he's really nice and he's a draw. People love him and he doesn't come out east that much. So we got Harlan Ellison. And I, my friend Larry, again, who I grew up with, mm-hmm. had been to uh, MoMA, I believe, and met Ray Harryhausen during his promotional tour of Clash of the Titans. And he had a Clash of the Titans stationery mm-hmm. with Larry's handwriting of... Ray Harryhausen's address. So I wrote to Ray, and I said, we'd love to host you in New York. And he responded, and he said, yes. So the irony of this story that actually goes further is that I gave up my ability to say, fandom of New York, ladies and gentlemen, Ray Harryhausen. This was going to be great for me. I was going to say that. And Gary and Adam wanted to get tighter with Starlog so they can get bigger name guests. You know, we could never get Kirk or McCoy, you know. So, like John Cleese in The Meaning of Life, I said, well, you know, just don't go running to the clitoris. Uh-huh. Give them a little peck on the cheek. Yeah. And the peck on the cheek was me saying, how about we let the head of Starlog, uh, Carrie O'Quinn. O'Quinn, let him, because they're New York-based magazine, uh-huh. 
let Carrie O'Quinn take my honor and say, ladies and gentlemen, Ray Harryhausen. Mm-hmm. So there I am in the back of the room with the pipe and draping. Ray has got his, I have pictures, Ray's got his, all of his monsters with him in a big case. Mm-hmm. And he brought a couple of his puppetoon movies. Oh, nice. Now I had already met Frank Miller, who certainly had no idea who I, who I was. And I'm in the back of the room like this, and I'm a proud papa, but I'm also a little sad. And Ray is talking, and I look over, and standing right next to me is Frank Miller, who I would have killed to have been able to promote uh-huh. coming to the show. But I didn't say that. I just said, you know, I was shocked, and I went, Frank? Uh-huh. Bob Shrek. And he gets mad. I know who you are. Uh-huh. Which, like, like, oh, my God, he knows who I am. Holy shit, that's fucked up. <clears throat> uh, then, like an asshole, I go, well, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm watching Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> Shut up. I go, I'll just crawl into a corner because I'm a moron. That's how we began to know each other. This was long-haired. Long-haired freak. I have pictures. Yeah, right. Actually, my hair was so badly cut at this point, it was flipping right. like this. It was hard. I, I met Miller, but both of you guys, you must have... You could have started a band. Oh, yeah, right yeah. Now. He had long hair, too, yeah. He, but his hair looked better. He had he had quaffing. I think he had Lynn to quaff his hair. So anyway, yeah, so that's Colorist how it started. Huh? Colorist and quaffer. Colorist and quaffer. But yeah, so that's how it started. And then when I came to, uh, you know, we met several different shows mm-hmm. and stuff like that. He knew Diana. Diana wrote a letter to almost every issue of his Daredevil for, mm-hmm. like, right. forever and... So he knew her separately, and then when her and I got together, it made it easier for all of us to kind of, oh, yeah. So, so yeah, so he, you know, and plus I was his editor mm-hmm. on, uh, like I said, in this new book. I went, oh, my God, I did edit this little short story that oh, wound yeah. up in DHB and is now considered a uh, Sin City story. But we did the, the two big books we did with The Big Fat Kill and The Yellow Bastard. Oh, yeah. I worked on some Martha... And I worked on uh, the big guy in Rusty the Boy Robot. Was it because um, because the couple times I've met Miller, he's he's very uh, he seems like a almost shy. He is. Did did that uh, did that take a while to get close to him or was it? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, he was. Very, you know, when, whenever you're that exalted, mm-hmm. you you have to put up mm-hmm. a barrier and say, hey, I don't know why you're here. And he tested me on my first Sin City book. He uh, he described the color of the cover. Uh, it was a monthly, uh, the the Big Fat Kill, I think, was the first one. Mm-hmm. And he told me what a beautiful, because the way he worked with Lynn, he wouldn't tell her anything. Right. He would just do the drawing, and it was up to her to decide, day, night, whatever. Mm-hmm. So he describes this amazing cover to me, and then he sends me something that didn't look anything like that. Right. And I literally went everywhere in that office. Went to Mark Cox, was his name? He was the art director at the time. Uh-huh. Like, am I crazy or is this one of the worst covers, paintings you've ever seen? Everybody agreed, like, and Richardson was like, don't say anything. I was like, no, I'm going to say something because it's terrible. We're not going to put this cover up. Right. And I called him and went, uh... You know, this this cover color, I mean, Lynn's great, but this isn't doing it for me. And he got very quiet. Uh, I'll call you back. And he hung up. He was jerking me around the entire time. The next mm-hmm. day, FedEx comes, just the exact cover that he described. Right. 
And it was just to make sure I wasn't going to blow smoke up his ass. So what would he have done if you just sent that one to print? He probably would have had another editor on the next book. Oh, okay. Or sooner. You know, so you have to be careful. You know, with Jim Lee, what am I going to tell? Oh, Jim, go back to school. You don't know what you're doing. Right. Frank, you don't understand the first thing about Batman. I was going to make you a joke that uh, I was like, "Are you saying Are you saying Dark Knight Two is just him ch- checking at the editor?" <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> you evil bastard! Uh, <laughs> I drew those hundred pages just to see. <laughs> no. Well, you want to hear what he said when he called me to do Dark Knight Two? Yeah. Hey Shrek, you want to go on a suicide run? Because <laughs> he knew that everybody was going to hate it. Right. Because it wasn't the same thing he did in 1986. Right, certainly. He didn't want to do it again. And Lynn Varley, what a horrible colorist. Look at the colors of that book. They are horrible. She doesn't know what she's doing. Let's see, she's won an award for almost every time she's colored. So she accidentally screwed up the colors on that book? She did exactly what Frank had hoped. Well, the thing is... Gaudy, she, outrageous. She did stuff like that. Flares. She would do weird stuff. Before the yeah. Night Returns, like yes. the old uh, World's Finest with, um, what's his name? Gibbons? No. No. No, 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 no. No, not, not remembering. He was, was the other man. I was wondering about Dark Knight 2, and this might be jumping way far forward, but, but my impression of it always was that the first Dark Knight, when it came out, had such an impact on the whole landscape of comics and the work that everyone did that that one almost felt like him being, like, all right, let's just have fun and fuck around, and hopefully people will get that they can just have fun and fuck around after this. You mean the strikes again? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. well, yeah. No, he didn't want to try to repeat returns. And yeah, it was an, a celebration of the form. It was, I want these people to look like there's, they're not even wearing costumes, that they're practically glowing in their, 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 their superhero uh, colors, um, and the ending is uh, what is it the uh, the wrath of Khan, right? I think that's the one, or maybe it's the search for Spock. I can't remember. Where Kirk, they say, "How do you feel, Jim?" Mm-hmm. And he says, "I feel young." Uh-huh. I mean, look at Batman in that last shot. His right. teeth are hanging out. His ears are all broken, and he's like, uh-huh. He's having a good time. And they will have none of it. It's got to be dark, and it's got to be this. It's got to, and it wasn't. It had its politics, but nine eleven really took it over. Because, uh, right. I mean, I don't know if you've heard the story about the line in the book and where he crashes. You know what I'm talking about? No. Okay. Well, Batman gets in his bat plane, right. and he crashes into a tower building, okay. towering building, which is Lex Luthor's. Mm-hmm. And he crashes in, and then he sits at Luthor's desk, and he puts his hands back, and he says, Ah, striking terror. Mm-hmm. Best part of the job. That was already in my hands. Right. And we got hit at 9-11. But he had, he had a twin tower, uh, twin towers of Gotham in the first Dark Knight, too. Yeah, right. But did they, did they fly into the tower? I think he crashed into it, but it was with a... Something world. else, yeah. yeah this a, was a plane, right. and this was saying the word striking terror, terror mm-hmm. best part of the job. And we all went, creepy, mm-hmm. and got on the phone with Frank and said, we don't want to touch it. This is what you did. Right. We're not going to fix it, 
for the world, although they did fix the hallway painting on the sixth floor, or the, yeah, the sixth floor, because uh, it was Metropolis in ruins. Oh, okay. And they went, made it blue. Like, oh, really? Oh, wait, is that? Uh, yeah, never mind. So, um, and then the next book had Metropolis being, Metropolis being destroyed, mm -hmm. and Frank made his commentary where uh, Superman and his daughter uh, are flying away from the destruction because they have not, there's no relevance. Right. It's not the same. The people that are relevant are the firefighters and the you know the the workers, so they just walk away from the destruction, you know. So it really, I mean, it did. While it was a celebration, it it got a little somber mm -hmm. for a while because we were all had a, had just been kicked in the nuts, right? You know, and I was knee jerking back then. I mean, I had a big fight with Paul and Anna about it and have since apologized and said, you guys are right and I was wrong and right. we got sold a bill of goods and, and uh, you know, uh, I'm the first one to raise my hand when I've done something stupid. might take five years, but I'll get there eventually. No, I did. Once I realized what was going on, I said to Paul and I, I was sorry. But yeah, so, yeah, so that was a, that was a great book to do and it sold phenomenally well. And and everybody, you know, the people that got it were Tony Millionaire and James Kachalka. <laughs> all those people that went, oh yeah, this is cool. <laughs> and all the people that wanted, you know, right, right. to go to be fourteen again and uh, read Playboy magazine or Rolling Stone, whatever it was, the article. Isn't they that James Kachalka sometimes? That's true. That is James Kachalka. <laughs> Sorry, James. <laughs> so we we're, we should maybe we'll backpedal a bit to the. Um, or uh, go go back is a better to the uh, to the to the Oni. Oni, yeah, it was just uh, we wanted to do what we wanted to do, and I knew everybody. So and Joe knew a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Joe got uh, Saint Swithin's Day at our Oni party, our first Oni party in San Diego, by hanging out with Grant Morrison and just I love that book. Well, you want it? So we got so it's like Grant Morrison. Was the Oni double feature? That was that from the beginning? Yeah, Oni Double Feature was our baby, and that was uh, Judd Winnick's first comic book story that won, that uh, got nominated right. for uh, an Eisner, I think. Um, and it was a nice thing for me because I had been nominated and won a few Harveys, mm -hmm. and then Oni Double Feature actually continued that, right, at least the, for a year. Yeah, with the... The great Bill Sienkiewicz stuff in there, and uh, yeah, we had the wacky Bill Sienkiewicz stuff in there. I, I didn't yeah. want to. I didn't want to poke at the Judd Winnick thing for a bit. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was. I was wondering, and this is partially me being a dick, but I was wondering if you. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> I've known you long enough. Yeah, and I was. I was you should wondering... for this for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was wondering if, if in your career, if there are many people who you backed who you felt didn't, didn't deliver eventually. No. I, no, it's particularly with Judd. I actually have a book with Judd right now. Oh, you do? That's coming out. It's called The Town Called Dragon. Uh, I can show you bits of it later. Um, I got a brand new guy that uh, he's 30, 31, Jeff Shaw, who's a scatty. I've been following him since I was at DC and waiting and just kind of right. pulling him out of the. He, well, yeah. Because I so, assume Winnick was gone from comics. No. 
No, he left D.C., as many others have, right. because of various and sundry things. The Great and, Exodus. Hmm? The Great Exodus. Yeah. Was it part of, was it a political, I mean, did he, because there was some backlash from his Batwoman. There was some backlash, but that's not, that's not it. Um, no. Uh, no, he got tired. He's done a lot of indie stuff on his own. His Barry Ween stuff is hilarious. I don't know if you've ever read Barry Ween. Yeah, I've read that. I yeah. mean, my, my, my major issue with him as a creator was always that he, uh, well, I guess it's like you said, the who you know in the beginning is kind of getting into comics through MTV. Right. And then uh, seeing him do creator on work and being like, okay, cool. And then seeing a guy go over to DC and and my impression at the time was, oh, this guy's done with doing creator on work. Now he's just going to kind of bang out these these Batwoman comics that make uh, it creepier for women to go into the comic book store. Well, if you knew Judd, that wasn't his intention. I did. <laughs> okay. I don't think he was trying to distance them, but it, it seemed like the effect. Right. Um, all right, so here's some stuff you're missing. <clears throat> there are emotional beats in my life, and one of them is the following. And I don't know if you remember this, but we did... What some criticized, but most enjoyed. And I don't care what other people think. I know what our motivation was. But we did the uh, Terry story, Terry Berg story in Green Lantern, where Green Lantern's young assistant is nearly Matthew Shepard to death. Mm -hmm. That was not started with Judd. That was started with Ron Mars. And it started because when I was working with Ron on Aliens with uh, Bernie Wrightson, Batman versus Aliens, he, Ron lost his dad. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of experience with death, unfortunately. I have a lot of experience with suicide, unfortunately. He had none. And it was very sweet. Months later, his wife sent me a, a letter saying thank you. Because she, she was having trouble consoling him and getting him from A to B. Right. While I was doing that with him, I was also slowly coming out again. So I was telling him my story of the pain that I went through as a young boy and a teenager and a a 20-something. So we became very close. So when I went to D.C., he was writing Green Lantern. And he said, look, I want to do a story that, that... I want to do two stories. One about your journey. And, you know, we can have... Kyle, get an assistant, and maybe we can do this story. And do it as edgy as we can. Is there any worry in doing something with that that it's not quite his story to tell? No, because I was going to be there to okay. to help him. I was I, He was going to tell it for me. Worry. There's a thing I call a Macklemore. You know, the, the rapper doing the thing about Yeah, the, but, you know, that's the other thing. Oh, let's beat him up because he's heterosexual. Well, not even beating it up, but just like... Um, it's not his story to tell. Yeah. Well... He, but he did have those questions when he was younger. Right. So, you know, you can't have those questions. No, I, I think it's valid to talk about, but yeah. also important to make a platform for other people that have those experiences to talk about. I, yeah, I, I, I don't see a problem with it. I thought, I thought it was great, and I was cool with, with Ron doing it, and okay. I was helping him. And we went, John and I went to GLAD as well to mm-hmm. kind of get, and that's all another thing. But so, um, and then we were going to do a story where. Kyle's mom uh, dies, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to do dad. He wanted to do mom and dad. Right. So then, cross Jen, he leaves. I wanted Judd. Mm-hmm. I've worked with Judd. I like Judd. It wasn't him using me. Mm-hmm. 
I'm using him. You know, I think he's a good writer. So I go, hey, why don't you come do this? And he's like, okay, cool. Wow, this is great. It wasn't a plan. I didn't know Ron was going to leave. So Ron said, please don't do the story about Kyle's mom. But you have my best wishes. And who better than Judd? Again, Judd's straight. But he's had a lot of experience with gay people. And national experience with gay people. So, and then for me... I started getting haunted by Matthew Shepard in the weirdest way. I watch, uh, who's that fucking pile of shit senator or whatever, um, the guy who wound up having sex with his uh, black... Oh, God, he's dead now. (laughs) I can't remember his name, but it was a whole whole thing about this guy. And the last interview with these, you know, gay pride people talking about this guy is Matthew Shepard. And I'm it was, you know, literally two months before he died. Right. So everywhere I go, to the point where I contact this woman at Glad, mm-hmm. cold, out of the blue, call her, and I go, well, you know, I want to make sure I do, you know, I'm bisexual, so it's really not all my story, because I'm not 100% gay. I want to make sure I get this right. I go, and I, you know, uh, kind of blank out her name now, but she worked for Glad, and I said... And I'm being haunted by Matthew Shepard. And she goes, well, you know, Bob, my mom and her house has nothing but family photos on the fridge, except for one photo. And that's the photo of me and Matthew's mother, because she was the point person working for Glad and Matthew Shepard's mom. And I don't know this. I just called her out of the blue. So there are all these weird things. So Judd comes out. To New York, we go out and we don't say anything to Levitz. We walk into his office, and I always let the creator person talk. I just let him go, and he's like, "Well, Paul, this is what we want to do." I think all Judd said was we wanted to have an experience uh, of a gay, a young gay person uh, going through the trials and tribulations of coming out, and he just went. Just go and make me proud. Mm-hmm. That was it. Mm-hmm. End of meeting. And then the end of that yang is we didn't publicize it. We didn't say it was coming out. We didn't do anything. We just did it. We didn't make any money off of it. And we made George Gustine's or Gustine's, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, took the story, made it front page arts and entertainment mm-hmm. section. And I'm going to get through this without crying because I usually do. But it was a great day when Paul Levitz walked into my doorway, held this thing in his hand, and he went, you know, this job sometimes can really, really suck. But then there are days like this. Thank you. And at which point he left, and I started crying. And then Patty Jarrah started crying, and everybody started crying. Because we did, I thought, we did something good. Of course, oh, well, it was so typical. And it's like, shut the fuck up. How many times has this happened? And I think another writer who I'm associated with poo-pooed it later because, of course, he is much better. But the, the, and it's, again, you're not a woman, you're not a lesbian, and you're not, so you can't do it either. Whereas I don't care. Go ahead and do that. I'm very good. You did a great job. Okay. okay. Don't shit all over me. So... Anyway, that was a big, big moment for me uh, and for Judd. So, uh, and Judd's first story in, in Only Double Feature I thought was great. And I thought he'd had some other fine moments 
in the uh, the stuff that we did in Green Lantern, and then uh, the other book I'm really proud of is is uh, I'm blank on the name of it now, Caper. Caper. Caper, right, with Farrell. On with Farrell on the art. And uh, while there are elements of other stories, you know, yeah, there's a little Lebowski here, or, or maybe it was Miller's Crossing, and there's a little bit of this and that, there's a lot of judge. Caper almost won me over on it because I was reading okay. it, and I was really into it. And, and I've yet to not enjoy something Farrell's done. Right. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I could give you one. And there's it's times, not. There's times that Farrell's done the story, right. and I've been like, "God, I wish he wrote this himself." Yes, there you go. I love Farrell. I love his work, but there was one story that uh, that I read of his. It's a short story that somebody else wrote, and I will not name names. But I just went, "Why does this exist?" I mean, I'm guilty of those crimes too, so I can't start. Oh, no, believe <laughs> me. Hey, I did a book called Rack and Pain while I was at Dark Horse. Uh-huh. Copies to sign that I brought. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you try. Sometimes you fail miserably. You know, that was our image book that no one bought. Thank God. Did you ever do creative stuff yourself, like in comics, like writing? Yes, I, <laughs> he laughed. There's, there's Randy's <laughs> response. Randy, tell, us, tell us about the work. He ghost wrote uh, Booth and the Bruise Crew for years. <laughs> I did. I wrote. Um, I wrote Jurassic Park. For IDW. Oh, right. Yes. And, uh, with Miller covers, I believe. Miller, on the first cover, it was every cover had uh, a special cover. Uh, uh, Tom Yates did all the covers, and then we had Miller, Pope, Bill Stout, yeah. Bernie Wrightson. Oh, blanking on the other one. I don't know who the last one was. Well, Bill Stout was the last one. I'm blanking on the other one. I'm sorry. Hello, Stout at Shrek. Can you, can you draw dinosaurs? <laughs> yeah. Hey, what do you think? I'm blanking on the other one, but they they were they were all amazing. Um, so yeah, yeah, I wrote that, and it was fun. It was you know, I mean, I've written a lot that hasn't been in comics, I've written, mm-hmm. especially when I was younger. I wrote a lot of movies. I wrote a lot of papers. I wrote a lot of memoirs, and uh, so. But this was my first. Okay, we're actually going to be published, and I had three different editors on the book over the course of time. <laughs> Plus, annoying him, annoying Shannon Stewart, annoying uh, Greg Tumbarello. Um, but I had a lot of fun doing it. I almost killed the franchise. I think I might have killed the franchise. I, I got uh, Greg Bear to come. He's a Hugo Award-winning writer from the 80s, I think, early 90s. He came on and did a five-issue story that I basically edited all the scripts, and then I left IDW, and, and Jeff, I had already commissioned Jeff Darrow to do a cover. Uh, which is he did this beautiful triceratops weird I'm thing. Surprised, it's beautiful. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so in another cover. <laughs> right. Yeah, another another dinosaur. No, 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 no. Yeah, he's so good. Um, but yeah, it was an, exp- an interesting experience and uh, trying to get out of your own way. You know, yeah. trying to oh my god, I just painted myself into another corner. How do I get out of this corner? So but I had fun. With an editor on that? I had three editors. So I started with Chris Ryle, and then I had another one, and then I had another one, and okay. then, yeah. My brain went off for a second. It's okay. Did Sorry. that kind of affect your own editing process, being on the other side of the door? Not, not much, because I've always been pretty um, 
you know, a lot of empathy and a lot of understanding of being, you know, as an editor, I get frustrated when I hear other editors. I mean, while I can be harsh, the other part of me is, I mean, you are, you wear pom-poms, you're a hostage negotiator, you're all these different things, but more importantly, while you're editing every stage and seeing every aspect of this book as it goes through the system, you're the you're the last wall of defense. You're the guy who has to protect them from the corporation that wants things that sometimes it doesn't deserve, that it doesn't earn. And I always say, we don't pay their health insurance. We're not making sure they got work in six months. They're freelancers. These people, and I don't get possessive. If Arthur Adams has another job after the one I do with him, I don't get mad at him. And I see editors do that. Oh, you know. Right. I get like, oh, gee, like uh, Fabio and Gabriel are doing a book with Diana now. And they did work with, with the Sierra. It's oh, like, right, yeah. BPRD? Yeah, and I'm not mad at them. I'm happy. You know, I can't work with them all the time. Mm-hmm. So go and be fruitful and have a great time. And have you're going to learn from Sierra things that you're not going to learn from me. You're going to learn things from Diana, from this one, from that one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, I've always had that empathy, that ability to go, look, they're the ones out there on the front line. Um, I'll give you another one that I think, I think really is, for me, it's the test of an editor, and it's Archie. Uh, and this is something that, that I think I've been born with and that I think Archie was born with. So Judd Winnick was really late. This is the opposite of the other story I told. <laughs> he was really, really late. And I'm sweating bullets. And this is DC. This is, like, not good. And I call him. And I'm upset. And I get on the phone. And I stop. And I go, hey, Judd. How's it going? And we don't talk about anything. Really, it's just, I sensed something on the phone that it wasn't time to bully him or push him. Or, and he sensed, or at least he knew what was going on in his life. He didn't want to, if he started talking about it, he would have gotten all flipped out. Right. So we talked for half an hour, and I ended with, well, you know, and he goes, yeah, I know, meaning he's late. I go, okay, cool, just, just, just wanted to say hey. Got the script three days later, then a phone call. The phone call was that his uncle, who was basically his other father, mm-hmm. had been had had like a horrible heart attack. He was living in Israel. Real smart dude. I got. I met this dude. He was frightening. He was just. He was a doctor, and he was part of some government thing, and just super genius guy, and very very sweet. And he was almost dead, and Judd was out of his mind. He was just completely out of his mind. And he just, before he said anything, he said, I just want to thank you for the call the other day. Because you didn't bother me. You didn't yell at me. You didn't scream at me. I don't know, maybe somehow you knew what was going on over here. But I almost lost my Uncle Bob or whatever. And I was was like, no no problem. I got the script. And I'm glad your uncle's doing better now. And... I understand why you didn't bring it up to me because it would have been hard for you to talk about. And this is why I like working with you because you're not an asshole and most of the times I'm not an asshole. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And those are the things that I think that's what Archie could do. Archie could smell it mm-hmm. and go, not now. Now is not, not the time. 
So I think he's I think he's out. I welcome. No, it's all right. No more barking. No more barking. Yeah, he's so good. So anyway, I, I think Bob brings up a really good point because I think most people don't know what editors do. Yeah, and it's on top of being a project manager, it's managing people, and Bob does it just so incredibly well. Thank you. It's very sweet. <laughs> I know when to yell. <laughs> I know when to yell and just go, fuck, I can't do this anymore. But you try not to. You know, you just try to be chill and you try to be cool and you try to let people do what they want to do. Did you, you know? ever end up working with Harlan Ellison? Sure, yeah. Because he has kind of a reputation for being a difficult to manage human being. <laughs> he is very difficult to manage, but he's great. Um, so I met him at Creation and I was given the task of helping him sell his books right. while he huckstered and talked. And I was frightened because I knew this is the human equivalent of a Tasmanian devil. Right. He's just spitting and screaming and yelling. And I was very young and scared. He was the nicest person you'd ever want to meet. Uh, very, so gave me a book, signed it to me. He's like, yeah, you were great, you know. I was like, oh, wow, thank you. Has anyone ever seen him and Howard Chankin in the same room together? Oh, they've been in the same okay. room together, sure, yeah. I was he, accusing them of being Bruce Wayne and Batman. I know, I know, I know. I think Harlan could eat. Do you think Harlan likes show tunes as much? Oh, oh. I think he does, yeah. <laughs> I think he does. But so that's how I met him, and then we worked together at Kamiko. Mm -hmm. We did uh, Night and the Enemy that Ken Stacy. It was two stories that Ken had already done, and we collected it with a couple of new ones. Oh, yeah. And it was really great. We went to Toronto and hung out with Harlan up there and, and Ken. It was snowing, and we were in this little teeny we'll car. See Ken Stacy next week. Oh, great. Tell him I said hello. We were old, old friends. He's a great, great person. Uh, and I actually still have all three Matt Cross covers that he did. Oh, nice. Beautiful paintings. My favorite is Next Gen with the little red-haired girl dancing Annie. on top of it. Yeah, dancing on top of a dinosaur egg. Nice. With beautiful, I mean, it's that Ken Stacy fucking mm -hmm. airbrush, gorgeous, and a big T-Rex coming. This is great. But, um, and no, Ken, you're not getting them back. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, it was great because it's snowing and we're in, the, we're in this car. And it's snowing, and Harlan gets out and starts cleaning the windows in the car. And me and Diana in the back seat going, "This is kind of weird, right?" Harlan Ellison's wiping our windows down. It's like, of course, I had to go. You missed a spot, you know. He's like, "Fuck it, right?" Um, so the funny, there are several. I have several good Harlan Ellison stories, but my favorite is I worked with him on Harlan Ellison's Dream Corridor. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so a funny name for an anus. Yes, it is. But hey, you know. Keep class granted. Yeah. So, so I send him the first story uh, that uh, it might have been actually the interstitial pages by Eric Schanauer. And <clears throat> Harlan just writes, you know, it's just, it's, it's all prose to him. Mm -hmm. But when you're reading a comic book and you're looking at a balloon, if the eye doesn't see a place to rest, right. you eyes roll back in your head like a shark and you go to sleep. So you have to put emphasis. So I sent, I don't, you know, I'm an editor. I've read his stuff before. This is a good spot for an emphasis. This is a good spot for a bolded word. Jesus Christ, Shrek, what the fuck are you doing? You don't emphasize my words. I emphasize my words. 
You just turn that back the way it is. I'm like, Harlan, Harlan, Harlan. Finally, he shuts up. I go, Harlan, go into that massive vault that you have, your little hidden doorway. Right, dream corridor. His dream corridor, and pick up any comic book. And you've got a lot of them. I don't care what year. Pick one up, open it up, and look at it. Click. Half an hour later. Oh, Christ, Chuck, I'm sorry. Okay, Harlan, welcome to my world. Every comic book does this. You can look it over. You want things changed. I'm happy to change it. But I think I did a pretty good job. Right. Never changed me. Not once. So that was, you know, that was one of the, the great moments of him just completely walking into a wall and like readjusting his nose. But yeah, but aside from, you know, he's never been uh, mean-spirited to me. He's always been, at times he's difficult, but he's... He's usually right. And when he isn't right, he apologizes. Right. He's not a big baby. He's a he's a full grown man and he he takes it when he's wrong, he's like, Wow shit, I'm sorry. Okay. But he doesn't say I'm sorry a lot. Because right. he's usually right. Yeah, I'm wondering how much uh, does 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 a does a creative ego ever turn you off from working with someone? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, there's no love lost between me and John Byrne. Right. I was his editor, but he didn't want our names on his books right. as editors. It's like, okay, so why don't you just call me your, you know, your chambermaid? I come in and I pour out your your chamber pot. I uh-huh. mean, what is that? He wouldn't didn't want Barbara Kiesel to have an editor credit. Right. You know, what kind of hubris, kind of rude, stupid right. thing is that? You know, uh, actually, he part of the legend thing was he told me one thing and when it came down to it uh, told the legend guys something else and I just mm-hmm. called him out on it. I was like no that's not what he said this is what he said oh it's right I was like I don't care whether you got it told Richard I don't care whether you lose him the truth is the truth this is what he said right. this is it and the legend guys just went and then it all fell apart anyway mm-hmm. you know eventually just legend was pretty exciting while it lasted while it lasted yeah they started you know um with the, the new kid, Mike Alred? Mike Allred, yeah, that began and started to fade after Mike came on. Oh, poor kid. The poor guy. That lasted a while. I think, I think he's done okay, though. He's done great. It's amazing in his career. We actually turned down his first book at Kimiko. Yeah. It's called Dead Air, and we knew the punchline on page two. It's like, yeah, they're all dead. You know, it's like, why am I going to read this? I don't want to read cover. Yeah, it's dead. It's boring. <laughs> And then it came out later on, but it was, yeah. Did Renegade do it? I can't remember who did it. But yeah, Mike is another one that's just, it's like Pope and several others, or Walt Simonson, I mean, I could go on. Most of the people I've worked with come from a really positive well. They really don't, you know, I mean, with all the Frank's, you know, anger in his books, he's very positive guy you know he was always very sweet and and giddy about comics and right. giddy about creating you know i read an uh, interview with him the other day like a recent like short interview where he says like he won't read any criticisms of his work because it would hurt him which really sh- kind of shocked and surprised me because when you put such harsh work out there yeah um there's gonna be there's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, a jump 
in logic to see that uh, the reaction to the spirit wasn't what he had hoped for. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, some people just, and I I think it was a function of being younger, he could deal with it more. I think he heard, and how can you not hear it? Yeah. You know, it's a tsunami of sound that's coming at you, either positive or negative. But I think he he doesn't seek it out as much as he used to. Right. Um, and and I you know he's I understand. He's an interesting it. creature since he's been famous since he was, you know, comic book famous since he was twenty two or right. Whatever. And now he's he can't move without right. security and an entourage. It's a whole other world, you know. But uh, but I had dinner with him la- a couple last week in San Diego. Uh, it uh, and we he was really funny uh conversation was great and, and it's kind of the old gang me him diana dave gibbons and his wife helen and, uh no, chapman wasn't there um and uh, his new uh, assistant and kimberly and we all we had a good time it was a lot of fun a lot of laughs and he was sharp as a tack you know um but yeah you know, it, it, you change as you know, life goes on. You right. know, you have different reactions to different things, and you know, I kept trying to tell him, you know, get, you know, this is a movie, and you know, he didn't react very well to the reaction to right. RoboCop I, I'm Two. Animal, but I, I enjoyed the Spirit movie. Right? Yeah. No, I. But I was never a huge Eisner guy, so I was watching a Frank Miller movie from a whole different perspective. And yeah. then, oh look, there's a Jeff Darrow drawing. So. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. I. I like parts of it but I thought that you know certain parts failed it just didn't come across as a cohesive you know narrative I don't, I don't quite hold it up with, with yeah. Frank Miller's best work best work yeah and again I begged them I said do a short that's what Neil Gaiman did do a 10 minute short I've made movies it's like you know I'm going to be a stand up comic and I'm going to do two hours mm-hmm. no you get up and you're lucky if you can get five minutes do a short Neil did a short and went, mm, well, maybe I shouldn't direct, you know. I mean, the the Rodriguez movie was dead on line for line his writing. His writing, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's got to be hard to not feel like you already had a huge success. Oh, no, he did have a huge success, but, you know, the he basically worked with the actors. Mm-hmm. He had already done the storyboards. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was all there visually. Right. So Robert had a great path to follow but Robert also knows how to move the camera and how to get the effects to work Mm -hmm. so Robert did a great deal of work on that movie to make it function that Frank didn't know how to do when he did The Spirit Right. Um, I'm actually in the next Sin City movie so you've been in a couple movies now yeah I have but this is going to be fun I get uh, Jessica Alba steps on my head (laughs) oh nice nice <laughs> That's somebody, gonna be... somebody was quoting. I was I was discussing. I was asking like, why would somebody do this comic the other day? And somebody's like, you know that you know that scene in uh, in Jay and Silent Bob that the Shrek's in. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, where the Gus Van Sant is not even looking. He's just counting his money. That's your answer right there. That's why they took the job. Exactly. Sometimes it's just the money. Thank you very much. Yeah. I kind of want to. This easily segues to Holy Terror. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of kind of controversy and slightly, because um, <laughs> it's a difficult book mm-hmm. politically, mm-hmm. it's a difficult book, mm-hmm. and 
um, that was originally going to be it. It was called Holy Terror, Batman, yeah. like Robin would say on the old TV show. Yeah, and Paul Levitz was 100% for it. And uh, How was that initially pitched? Because I had a, a very clear idea of what it was, and I don't know how accurate it is. It was pitched uh, face-to-face with Paul, myself, and Frank. And basically it was Frank saying, I want to do a story based in a fictional New York where we take out the cell. We go after Al-Qaeda. We, you know, Batman takes out Al-Qaeda. Not all of Islam and not every Muslim on Earth. It was Al-Qaeda, the people who were trying to destroy this country and wanted to kill 3,000 people and close to and did it. So, and Frank purposefully made it Uh, left it to artistic interpretation. You mean the pitch? Uh, no, he he's, he was very clear about the pitch. But when he did the book, you have to remember the book almost took ten years to finish. Right. He was continuing to work at DC because that's how he started again with me. Mm-hmm. And then once I left, he was like he waited a long while and went, you know, Shrek, I shave off the ears. It's the same story. I don't need Batman, and I'd rather do it with you, because we started it, and now this whole legendary thing is happening, so let's go. It's up to you, Frank. Twist my arm. It did huge. It did giant numbers. Um, Some of his tweets later on didn't help, uh, and kind of, I think, colored more than it should have what the intent of the book was. Right, because my impression early on was that it was him doing a modern version of the World War Two kind of uh, absolutely kind of, yeah, which which has some certainly problematic elements when you're going against the Yellow Terror or whatever. Well, yeah, sure, but you know, uh, history hasn't really made people begin to think that Hitler was a good guy, right? Right. It was kind of good that we got rid of Hitler, right? Maybe yeah, not. I don't know. White people talking about white people is a different animal. That's true, but. What do you do? I mean, there was a bad guy that said all sorts of horrible racial things who was Irish in that story. Right. Because there are people that say those things. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, our possible presidential candidate chose his words nicely, but we know what he was talking about. Right, right. You know, uh, this whole thing with with Obama is because he's a black man. I'm sorry. Mm. You know, he can't say it. Right. But I, I'm not stupid. Let's impeach him. Why? Because he's black. Period. Yeah, right. Beginning and end. Uh, and 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 they're they're losing their rattle. These white men are losing their rattle, and they they're scared shitless. You know, bring us your week. Your that's enough. We've had enough. So what, Frank, what was he supposed to do? Call them Martians or you know? No, this was his World War Two. You're right. His World War Two comic. Where he's in a, it's a patriotic revenge. We're going to put you in your place. Um, yeah, and so the art changed drastically. If you look right. at the beginning of that, that was when he was on fire, when, mm-hmm. when downtown Manhattan was right. on fire. And then it went sat, and then he becomes kind of this Mobius, very thin lined, 
thing as you go uh, future into the, the rest of the book. Right. You know. I'm wondering if it was a concern of yours at all about overstepping when when he was doing it. Like, did you have any uh, any Muslim friends around that you could bounce it off of? And be like, is this going too far? Um. I don't. I don't think. Well, there were people that I worked with that were uh, two people that I worked with that were Muslim. Uh, one of them was actually an intern at the time, um, and they had their issues, but uh, they didn't say, "Oh, don't publish this." Right, because it was it is a dangerous time in America for stepping too far and and bunching all groups of people that uh, that look like like who is. You know, being propped up as the enemy or whatnot. Yeah, but they wear burkas. They wear. They do these things. They hide. You know. Again, right now we're having this. You know, this whole world is all full of all this turmoil and craziness. I don't think it's a good idea to cut women's genitals up. Don't think it's a good idea. Right. Sorry. Now, uh, if they're coming at me with a nuclear weapon, do I just let them kill me? I don't know. I don't know. That's a bigger question I can't answer. But that was Frank's reaction was, holy shit. They just came in here and killed 3,000, of some of which were, if not direct friends, acquaintances. You know? And when you're walking, when every day I got in the elevator, there were people dressed going to another funeral. Every day. Yeah. It was horrible. And... And I was down there. It was horrible. Yeah. You know, you watch this on the news. There's little girls and boys dying over in the Gaza Strip there. And and it's horrible no matter where you go. But that was his gut reaction was, fuck you, not on my turf, not in my town. Fuck this. He He didn't say all these people are to blame. He said those people are to blame. Al Qaeda is to blame. And, I mean, how do you address the issue by not addressing the issue? That's my perspective <laughs> okay, on it. Okay. You know, I mean, you can do a fantasy story, but it's still going to be the same issue, and then he's going to be accused of not grabbing the bull by the horns. Either way, you know. But anyway. I mean, the, the stuff that sticks out for me in it is, is stuff like where he's... You're all named Muhammad, aren't you? Right. Yeah, well, go through the phone book. A lot of them are named Muhammad. Right. I just I, I wonder if it's helping a problem or just just. Well, what's happened just since? Rage. What happened since? I mean, this is a, the book is now four years old. Right. Have there been? Have we? I mean, much bigger issue was building the mosque near near nine eleven. Right. What happened with that? Nothing. Right country hasn't gone completely insane except for ridiculous other things we're throwing children off of the border right. who are running from countries that are killing them and it's not a humanitarian issue it's an illegal immigrant issue mm-hmm. but the whole the whole muslim thing in the states Frank's book didn't you know it's a work of fiction i don't see the, the horrible result of him telling it the way he did well i mean i'm not blaming Miller for causing race riots in the streets. I right. was talking about specifically this work. Right. And, uh, I don't know, I mean, I... 
and I grew up on his stuff. And, it, and I, I, I was arguing this with Raman early, actually. I feel like in 1990s and 1980s, Frank Miller was, and, you know, Alan Moore, all these guys were untouchable. And it was almost this perfect storm of, of, uh, of him doing a Dark Knight book that didn't hit with a lot of readers, doing a, a spirit book that didn't hit with a lot of readers, doing uh, Holy Terror, and then uh, writing on his on his blog about right. about yeah. Occupy. But you know, you're again, you are falling in love with somebody who isn't real. Yeah. You mean you don't know him? Right, right. You're falling in love with his fiction, with mm-hmm. his work. You know, I have people. I love David Letterman, even though he's no longer the David Letterman that I watched when he started right. all those years ago. I still like him. Everybody I've ever talked to that actually knows anything about him says that he's an asshole. Mm-hmm. I'm not dating him. I like his art. I like his ability. And I've learned that a long time ago. Boy, oh boy. What Randy said earlier was very sweet, but... Part of why I am the way I am with these creators is because Mm. I go, I see certain individuals the way they really are. And you have to go, this guy is really talented. This guy is really good. I like working with him, but we're not going fishing together. He's not perfect. He's a human being. And they all have their things. And yeah, the movie, the spirit movie, didn't do really, do really well. I think the Dark Knight Strikes Again was great, and it sold well. And I don't care what anybody says. Well, in general, like it too. Yeah. And all of those, I'm just talking about how, uh, just just how it's interesting to me that that uh, I feel like if it, one of those things happened, his he would be basically me and Robin were arguing, but I was saying that his reputation is different now than it was ten years ago. Again, I think the I think the the couple of tweets did more damage than than you can imagine because of the social media and how much right, it's right. Bur- it's bursting out right now. Well, it's like if you, that thing with Alan Moore, where someone made up something that he said and started tweeting that, and it and just becomes and it's real. All, remember the uh, the bat uh, the Batman scholar thing? Oh right, right. I, I always feel like I Alan Moore is getting into a whole different conversation yeah. though too. But but they're the same in the sense that they are revered beyond where they should be. They're human beings. They're right. not perfect. Plus, you also have to take into account the rea- sorry, sorry, the reality of most people, as they get older, become more... And conservative, certainly. Thank you. The, so, the quote, and it helps if you have if lots and lots of money. Right. If you're, right. A social, if you're not a socialist when you're 25, you have no heart. If you're still a socialist when you're 45, you have no brains. That's my grandfather like good, to say that. Good already. line. Good or no money, I'd say. Yeah. Right. <laughs> True. Good line. You know, my dad was uh, weird to follow in his trajectory of being uh, in his politics because he was gung-ho Vietnam, and then he woke up like the rest of the country. Uh-huh. I mean, he told my middle brother, Dean, you're going. And Dean, thankfully, accidentally broke his leg, and they wouldn't take him. Right. I'm walking out a few years later, just as the draft is about to go away, and my father stops me and my two friends and goes, Bobby, they call you to, to go to Vietnam. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to Canada. You're goddamn right, and I'll pay for your plane ticket. Uh-huh. <laughs> what the f- how'd that happen, right? My brother Dean, when I told him, almost fell over. And then, and then as years go on, he, gets, he's, he became more liberal, 
then he, he now he's so old he doesn't care but he he really got out there i mean he was like he wanted to go into the streets right. and start tearing down washington dc uh, but in the early years he was the opposite he was very conservative mm-hmm. so he was confusing to follow but yeah as frank and all of us get older you know you get these you know you begin to see things a little more clearly um so I had no qualms with the book. I thought the book, but I, you know, at one point I didn't think the book was coming out. Mm-hmm. You know, I there were years that went by, and then he started working on it again, and and uh, he was pretty much done with it by the time, uh, I think he had thirty or forty more pages left to do, and we really got it going at the at Legendary, mm-hmm. and uh, and again it sold. Two, over two million dollars in uh, put two million dollars in the coffers of of the retailers who you know the fans some of them didn't like it some of them did and again he has different goals you know and this was personal right this do you was, feel do you feel at all politically I was thinking like do, would you does you think Miller would describe himself as libertarian. I don't, yeah, I think so. I think he would. Uh, I feel like Pope falls into that a little bit too. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, we've I've talked. About yeah, Paul, I'm Paul. Yeah, he's gone on record. If you at all, generally, do you feel like the creators you've gotten close to that you're politically aligned with them at all? No. Uh, some yes, some no. You right. know, I mean, on many issues, Frank and I completely disagree. Right. Absolutely, and you know, he'll sit there and say some stuff, and then I go, well. Blah, 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 and then we go, okay, next subject, because we just don't agree on a lot things, of I, I did always assume that, that you were an influence on, specifically I was thinking of the the gay characters in the, is it the final Sin City he did? With the, uh, the kind of military uh, commander in... Uh, That's uh, from Helen Back? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that was Diana's book. Okay. Yeah, no, I didn't. But he, you know, he did uh, Family Values, right? Which had the lesbian yeah. whole thing which in it. Which is always something I'm a suspect when. Look at these incredibly hot lesbians <laughs> making out. Look at how gay positive I am. I know. <laughs> it <helps laughs> you can masturbate to it yourself. <laughs> I know, but he was early on. I mean, you got to remember. You know, he when he came to New York. I mean, he was surrounded by gay people where mm-hmm. where he was living. So. It wasn't like he wasn't a Johnny Come Lately, no joke, and no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, he had all these friends, and he saw all this going on way before this society now is changing. You know, oh, they're human beings, and they're in my family, right. and we have to treat them with human respect. What a shock! You know, I'll never, I, I will never get it through my head how anybody can make the jump of your color is different than mine so I may treat you horribly. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. Arms, legs, we all take a crap, we all do this, we all eat, we all see. You're inferior. What? You know, and these barriers, I mean, right now in terms of of the sexuality situation, you've got the lowest people on the rung are transgender people right now who are yeah. suddenly, finally, being treated a little more humanely right. it's like why these things are t- it's interesting hard to get our head around I, comic books has always I mean it certainly has a reputation of being kind of 
boys club homophobic and everything absolutely but it also the reality is how many people that come into it that are indoor kids and a lot of that is people whose sexuality is part of their like lack of interest in or just maybe not something that makes it harder for them to go out like there's a lot of transgender cartoonists there's there's, yes and part of that i think is you're going to want to sit at home and draw when you go outside and being awkward and horrible to interact with other human beings that aren't treating you right. Well, actually, to that point, I can't tell you how many writers and artists in this field that I have met that early in their life had something that kept them home, that kept them inside, that either physically debilitated them or emotionally debilitated them where they said, I'm just going to sit here and draw Mm. or I'm just going to sit here and write because I don't want to go out amongst the insane fray. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that solitude, Mm -hmm. they hone their skills in the next thing you know. And then we wonder why they don't act very well when they get out and go to the con and go, oh, (laughs) And it's like, it's because they spent 30 years in a room. I I can't tell you how many people. We will fly Frank Miller to Antarctica, and we will pay for his room, and we will pay for his flight, and we will... Frank can fly himself to Antarctica, and if you've noticed, he'd rather sit in a room and draw, and he's only done a few trips away from here because he doesn't... That's not well, where his mind is. Alan Moore is the exact same way. Yeah. It's like, why would I want to go to America? I've got everything I need in Northampton. Exactly. They, they're insular people, mm-hmm. and they and that's what makes them so great, is because they're chasing all the bugs in their head right. and trying to work all this shit out, you know? Um, and you're probably, you're very similar in the way that you would prefer not to have to go and travel at all. Everyone Even who makes comics you... wants to sit at home and make comics. Yeah. Well, what does Neil Adams say? It's like, it's the... The, the cra- world's expanding. <laughs> oh, don't... Don't kickstart me. I worry about guys like Pope, too, because he set himself up as a rock star, and I think very effectively, and then they expect him to go outside, and I'm like, do they know he draws comics? But he actually has been good uh, I know he takes his shirt there. off. And <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, I saw <laughs> that. Photo? Uh, you, oh, yeah, I did. I know all those guys. They're great guys. Uh, yeah, no, I said hor- I, I sent him an email. I said, you are so lucky I wasn't there. <laughs> but uh, should I tell this story? You already told the story about his mom. I know, this is, this is nowhere near as bad. Because uh, I had, you know, I, uh, I'm a, I like Twinks. I like little Twinkies, you know. He's pointing at a cabinet of Twinkies. Right, right. <laughs> we have a few if you'd like one. Um, so I had never met Paul, and then the first time I met him, I believe was at WonderCon in Oakland. And uh, and plus I was slowly coming out of the closet. Da, da, da. <clears throat> so we go up to his room, and he's, and he's literally wearing... Uh, is it? Uh, 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 I'm gonna mess it up. Agora sweater or Angora? Angora? Angora sweater. All right, but it comes to here. A belly shirt. A belly it's shirt. Egg. And kind <laughs> of Le- Led Zeppelin <laughs> hip huggers. Uh huh. With his little belly <laughs> sticking out. Just whipped cream for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and he's getting this stuff on on the bed to be put in the closet and I'm standing there and I'm just I'm ignoring all this like an idiot and I go by the way I you know we're finally meeting and you should know that I'm 
on bisexual. And he stops and turns around and looks at him and goes, you don't want to fuck me, do you? And I went, no. I lied, but I said no. And uh, we moved on to another subject. Has he heard this version of the story? Yeah, well, it's probably completely different than what I'm saying, but I don't know. I haven't told the story with him in the room, so his perspective. But I, I know something like that did happen. Right. And uh, he was like, just look at me like funny. And, was your sexuality something that was important for you to tell people that you're working with? No. Um, no, like I said, it was a slow burn and uh, coming back out after living with Diana for 13 mm-hmm. years and being married to her for about a year and a half, two years, whatever it was. So, and plus it was the 90s and it was here. You know, I was yeah. in, in Portland and a lot of homophobia here, right. not only in Dark Horse, but everywhere. And to the, to this, right now we're in Milwaukee, Oregon. Believe me, there's a lot here because the minute you leave Portland proper, you get into the shit kicker right. territory, and oddly enough, our little community here has got lesbians and gays. I mean, we're 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 stinking up the whole place. Um, but yeah, no, uh, no, it wasn't important. Um, only when it mattered, you know, when I thought, okay, this person, I would like to share this with them because right. I think that they'll understand me more, and I know I won't get punched in the nose. Do you think, <laughs> so. in kind of a different way, it uh, for folks that were having those struggles, their, their own struggles, um, to see you and be able to identify with you, um, and kind of yeah, have definitely that like yeah. Well, when I came into when I finally got to DC, uh, how we met. Uh, I sat there saying, "Hey, they uh, Andy Mangles was running it at the time, and they wanted me to be." Uh, Randy, <laughs> note Randy size at the at the name Andy Mangles. Um, he wanted me to be on the gays and comics panel, which is kind of like the women in comics panel. Hi, yeah. we're women in comics. Good night, everybody. Uh-huh. Uh, so I went tap dance your way off stage. Yeah, <laughs> it's so silly, but you can understand that you yeah. need to do these things, and right. eventually it gets less and less silly. So I did go, and and uh, but I I asked, can I do this? And Paul Levitz looked at me and went, well, yeah, of course you can, you know. So I went, and oddly enough, uh, the year prior, I had was giving an award at the Eisners or something, and Randy. Brown leather pants. I was wearing black leather pants. He <laughs> says they're brown. They were leather pants. Yeah, regardless. right. Bad enough, right? Not thank, chaps. Thank I don't know why God, look at the color right. of yellow pants. It's about the content of the. That's pants right. Here. That's right. <laughs> Thankfully, they weren't tight. So anyway, um, he went, hmm, when he saw me up there giving this award or getting an award, whatever it was. And then the next year, he went to the panel, and he was his suspicions were confirmed, and then we met. But uh, he didn't, the funny part of it was he went to that Eisner uh, award ceremony not knowing where he was sitting, because his friends were with the CBLDF. He was mm-hmm. sitting at Eisner's table with Eisner. <laughs> <laughs> he found out later. It's like, oh, that's the Eisner. Um, like, Oops. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I've heard the head of the line. <laughs> right, right. So, but yes, uh, I've gotten many um, convention moments where people walk up, uh, men, uh, young men and women, both saying, hey, thank you for being out there and, and not hiding from it and just being who you are. Yes. And, yeah. We have a, yeah. a trans cartoonist in Vancouver who I've been kind of enjoying bringing, who's more of an elderly statesman for us, but left comics, and I enjoy bringing her like newer trans folks and kind of going, there's 
There's this community here. Yeah, uh, yeah. Here's your new mom. What? <laughs> no, it's uh, it's it's nice, and you know, and I feel again the the heartache of of people that are transgender because I'm sure there are quite a few that are happily transgendered, but there is also a good portion of them that even when they make the change don't really feel complete, and it's just a you know, it's a genetic emotional cauldron that, that uh, hopefully we'll be able to either figure out or do something to help help those folks because it is it's a it's hard enough just difficult enough trying to figure out who the hell you are even if you're straight or gay right. it's confusing being bisexual and transgender I can't even imagine you know I just can't even begin to put it together the amount of wires that that especially being young you know being a kid uh, I have a friend whose son was dressing in mom's clothing at like age four, just you know, looking rather silly because everything's really big. <laughs> yeah, weird cloak. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you just sit there going, "Wow, you know, gosh, how does how does that the human?" Did you hear that? Yeah. Well, when you see stuff like um, Catherine Jones, right? I mean, someone who quite later in her life yeah. transitioned in with. From what I can tell, I don't know her story very right. well, but went through a lot of mental anguish, yep. physical anguish, and yeah, you know, it's yeah a big loss. Yeah, no, and I knew Catherine way back when, when when Jeffrey was painting and doing all those things, and to see that going on, and you just you wish you could do something, and you just can't. You know, it's what. It's the journey they have to go through. Right. You know? I'm interested if you had any any role models on that front, growing up. Uh, well, not Liberace. Uh, you mean role models in terms of sexual identity yeah. and gay sex? Because um, I got the earlier you said of like Baudet was kind of a little back and forth and. Yeah. No. I mean, Vaughn was scary as a teenager. Yeah, but I got over it quickly. Right. And Vaughn was an amazing, really the most effective was Vaughn, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, I grew up with this. Uh, I I went to school with this guy Paul Pepitone, who's now no longer with us, but uh, our first school trip into. Manhattan, we were very young, I forget, maybe 14, 13 or something, maybe younger. And his brother was living uh, down near the Bowery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know that his brother was a transvestite. So we, we were going to the, muse- uh, the Museum of Natural History, and we split. <laughs> we went to see his brother, because mm-hmm. he, you know, he's like, ah, oh, follow me, I know where I'm going, we'll get there. And we go there, and <laughs> we were walking in this neighborhood that was either a Bowery bum, mm-hmm. that were classic Bowery, bum, Bowery bums, and then the other side of the street were a few transvestites. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was headed to an apartment that mm-hmm. had a man dressed as a woman, so we chose... The transvestites, because we figured we'll walk on this side of the street, because you know, we're guys. We can take care of these, uh-huh. these big girls if we have to. <laughs> and we didn't know. And then I get to the, my friend Paul's brother's house, and there's a woman there. Mm-hmm. And that was an, that was another kind of von Bodemo. I was like, oh, 
and, and Paul was doing it just to give me a rant. He's like, ah. <laughs> we get out. He goes, I didn't tell you. My brother was like, no, you didn't. Thank you very much, you asshole. You know, and I'm stumbling over my words and going, oh, don't touch me. And he wasn't interested at all. But uh, he just liked dressing up. He liked girls. But you don't know that when you see a guy with yeah. makeup on and right. a big bouffant. And I mean, this was the 60s, you know, late uh, middle 60s. But in terms of uh, like celebrities or anything like that, no, you had you had closeted people that you didn't know were were, you know, uh, I liked Paul Lind because he was funny, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but I liked Jonathan Winters because he was funny. Uh, as I got older, I go, oh well, yeah, Paul Lind is definitely gay. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Charles Nelson Reilly was funny. If you didn't know he was gay, you were stupid. You right. know. Um, <laughs> He might have just put a tattoo on his head, you know. But yeah, no, there weren't. There wasn't that much to to glom onto. So and, certainly, no one in, in comics that you're aware of then. Uh, no, 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 nothing that I that I knew of at the time. Um, and then you get older, and you go, oh, "This one was this. This one's right, that." Right. But then I didn't know uh, comics. They were all the same. Um, but yeah, and then you know things like David Bowie. As I got older, you know, oh, okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And he renounces you know, later on anyway. It's like, wait a minute. Same with Lou Reed. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, no. and, but you find out all these things. You know, the, the whole rumor about John Lennon and the manager guy and mm -hmm. you know, whether or not that's real or not, who knows? They are the only ones who know. And, but, uh, but you find out all this stuff later on. Like uh, Whoopi Goldberg just did a great... Documentary about Moms Mabley, yeah. and totally out at the time. Totally had other girl, and she dressed like a man, and right. had girlfriends oh, for the time. <laughs> and the whole world just went, well, whatever, you know. She likes yeah. girls. What, <laughs> you know? And here we are, you know. Who mm. knows? You know, the, we have these cycles that we go through, you know. But no, I was scared. I was scared, but when I came out the first time, I think I was 12, to my parents, and my mother cried, which is what she did all three times. My father said, you're my son, I love you, mm -hmm. but it's a horrible life. And then I came out when I was 14, and he said, you're my son, and I love you, but it's a horrible life. My mother cried. And then the third time, I don't think my dad said anything. My mother cried for about a week, and I love this story because... Uh, she, I don't think she showered or went to the bathroom or did anything. I think she sat in the chair in the living room for a week, crying. But I did find out later that she went to my old pediatrician, mm -hmm. Dr. Ruvo Cushing, who had uh, a... Cushing for the pushing. There you go. Big lady, gray hair. She went to talk to Dr. Ruvo about my sexuality. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Ruvo said to her, look, you know, you've got a lovely son and I've known him since he was born and, you, you know, his sexuality is his sexuality. What my mother didn't know was that Dr. Ruvo Cushing was a lesbian. Nice. It sounds like and the, doing the woman the at the front desk. <laughs> Hopefully not during the meeting. No. <laughs> but you're sitting there going, Mom, you went to Dr. Cushing? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I didn't even say anything. I just walked out laughing going, what's so funny? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> She had no idea this woman Her was a little vest work. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So crazy stuff. What a good boy you've been.
Yes. <laughs> and how has it been within within comics? There's certainly a gay community now. Do you do you feel part of that? Um, no, I don't think so. Because again, I'm the Easter Bunny, as mm-hmm. Kevin Smith would say. I don't exist. Uh-huh. There are no such things as bisexuals. It's just somebody who hasn't made up their mind yet, who won't commit. So there's a lot of people out there that just don't believe. And I don't... I I don't fit into those easy categories. I am not as flamboyant as some, I guess. I think I'm flamboyant enough. But I'm not as flamboyant as some. I always say, when we had the house in Jersey, I say we have a half a man cave. Because uh-huh. he's totally gay and I'm only half a man. Uh... I just don't fit into those categories. I think I get along fine. I do uh, uh, the um, prison thing. I go to their booth every year, and they're all lovely, and we all hug and kiss and say hello. Uh, But I kind of swim on earth, and that's it. And, you know, we have gay friends and neighbors. I had more actual interaction in Jersey uh, but Randy and I are, you know, again, the older you get, the less, mm-hmm. the more of your own life that you have and the less you're out doing crazy stuff. Right, certainly. And, the, I'm, and I'm not, you know, I'm going to be 60. And, uh, you know, in the comics community, it's like, oh, there goes the old hobbling old man. Yeah, okay, let him tell you a story, buy him a drink and get him back to bed. You know, it's, you know, I'm not what I was in the community, you know, back in 95. You know, it's a different world. Um, Is that a conscious choice for yourself going to something like um, Legendary and and not being a big powerhouse publisher and just not having to, like, you can just kind of focus on the work you're focusing on? Legendary was a complete and utter accident. Frank Miller called me up and said, hey, while I was at IDW, hey, would you want to come do this? This guy, Thomas Tull, wants to wants to start a comic book company, and I told him there's only one person that can put it together, you're the one. So, boom, I met with Thomas in October, I guess, four, four years ago, whatever it is now, and we hit it off, and it all worked out. But yeah, it works out great, because I, you know, I get, and I told him I'd never moved to Burbank, so here I am. Yeah. Uh... So it works out nice, and I get to do, you know, we're just now, I was promised three years, but it took four. I'm just now being allowed to develop a little wider spectrum of original, you know, uh, IP um, outside of the norm. You know, I did have Paul Pope. I had two Paul Pope books, but Thomas decided that after marketing them for a year, that we weren't going to do them. So the one trick ripoff came out from Image, even right. though we did all the work and paid for all that color and everything. Oh. We just handed it over to the Image. And Mr. Stevenson was very nice and gave me and Greg our credit, mm-hmm. which he didn't have to, have to do. It was very nice. So, yeah, so no, this is great. It's fun. Uh, you know, if so you. Is everything with Legendary tied with film? Not everything. Uh, we try to get cool stuff. For, my first job is get a good comic book. Mm-hmm. It has to be a comic book. If it doesn't work as a comic book, and I'll, and it works better as a film, then I shouldn't do it. It's got to be a good comic book. So um, 
the Grant Morrison book, I think is a great comic book. Would it be an amazing movie? You bet. Um, I think that the, the town called Dragon would be a fun visual romp, uh, either on TV or as a film. Um, we've got a, another book that we're doing. Um, I don't know if we announced it yet, but maybe not. I can't remember. This won't be aired till uh, beginning of September. Okay, so then we'll probably announce it by then. But we're doing a book with Brand, Brandon Seifert mm-hmm. <coughs> called Harvester, which Eric Battle is drawing. And it's kind of this, kind of like a pumpkin head story with a guy wearing a big hat and just kind of like, you know, this old farmer that gets killed and treated like shit. Now he comes back and kind of... Reaps what is so. Yes. Um, so but something like the Pope book, is it... So they, they, I mean, your end is having to make it a good comic. To, on the publisher's end, is it it also has to be a film? Or has to be something no. they can... They no, can it, if it's IP that he thinks has potential, sure, we'll, okay. we'll jump on it. Or... And what we'll do is we'll we'll grandfather them in forever. Like mm-hmm. the last underoo, they'll make money. Right. Um, <clears throat> but there are some things where we're like, no, we don't want to make this into a film. It's just going to be a good comic book, okay. and we're going to move on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, part of it is obvious that you can, you know, hey, if this works, let's go on. You know, bringing Matt Wag. Matt Wag was the first person I brought in <clears throat> that kind of co-created the Tower Chronicles with uh-huh. Thomas. Thomas had some ideas, and then Matt filled the room with all sorts of characters, and it's huge. I mean, we're just starting the next arc of the story mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in August, actually. Apparently it's printed, I just found out. Surprise. Yeah, so, but it's a, it's an epic story. It's really big, and you got to read it all again. Now, it might make a great two-hour jaunt, you know, who knows? We'll see. But yeah, no, it's it's been fun, and they treat me like gold. And um, I just wish we had more hands. Me and my associate editor, Greg Tumbarello, are drowning in product. But, uh, but it's stuff that, that interests me, you know, in the genre stuff. I mean, I, you know, I'd like to do another Terry LeBan book, but it's not going to fit with Legendary. No, uh, no, Muck Wolf Shaman. Uh, no. That was fantastic. You didn't work on that one, did you? No, I didn't, no. Fun book. He but he the rights back though. Oh, good, fantastic. good. It's an amazing story. Just I'm interested. Oh, I'm interested in something like uh, like coloring the Pope books. Do you, was that? Do you think that was a, a more of a something the Pope always wanted, or something that was to to open the work up to a wider audience? Um, both. I think uh, Paul, you know, I, I wanted it because I thought it. I know what his color sense is, so I always saw them. You know, yeah, he did some cover. We did some covers, but I always saw that book as a color book. I, I could because he left so much expanse to be interpreted there. And so when Thomas wanted three graphic novels out right. in a year, I was like, "Well, <laughs> we're gonna have Holy Terror, but uh-huh. the other two have got to come from somewhere else." So we right. had the art book that we we're gonna do, mm-hmm. and we we're gonna you know do the the, the one trick in color, plus. The other opportunity was there were so many other stories that him and I had done together yeah. that haven't seen print in a hundred years, so we we loaded it up at that. And then the manga stuff that he did for Kadansha. Yeah, it was fantastic to find like Never printed ever, anywhere. So yeah. some of that was left to be two tone and some of it black and white. It was always interesting to me that um, I, I, I can't hope very much from being a fan of manga and 
and his, his work always struck me as as uh, like being meant for black and white. Hmm. And uh, and even when he would do the old covers back then, he it was it was um, I don't know it was almost endearing how he would do them on on the back of acetate. Right, it's like right. this is how a crazy person covers. Right, 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 right. Well, that was the transition out of yeah. the back of acetate. I mean, I've got uh, Laura Allred original where it's on the back of oh, acetate yeah, yeah. and stuff. Oh, yeah, uh, Warrior Nun Ariella pinup by, right. by uh, Evan Dorkin. But Pope was doing it like <laughs> on acetate. Like Pope painting on acetate was like a, you know, it, it it didn't seem like he was coming from animation painting on acetate. Like a lower hour style, right? No, he he had a whole like nother slapping yeah. on paint, right? Yeah, you could, yeah. Like, I don't think you could look at a at a madman thing and be like, "Oh, that's done on acetate." Where Pope, you're just like, "I can see through this printed cover." Right. See, you know, I looked at Pope, especially the way he handled the one trick. I saw that as a, a Mobius book, mm-hmm. as a color Mobius book. That's how I saw it. And I get the manga aspect of the right. black and white, but when I, while I was doing the book in his time, and I would just go, oh my god. But not colored like a Mobius book, right? No, the, no, no, no. Because I mean, my, I think my thing, and this is just me poking around my own interests, is I, I love Pope's lines, and I'm like, oh, these colorists are, I'm losing the lines. Yeah, but see, I mean, Pope was a part of that. And I've talked to Paul about this and disagreed with him about his own. <laughs> right, right, her. right. So I'm not saying that I have any. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> he was he was all over Jamie and, yeah. and Dom, the the two guys who colored it. And and did one of them, both of them, work on uh, All Star Superman? Superman as well? Yeah, Jamie. I don't think no. Dom might have worked on All Star Superman, but I don't think anybody knew it because I didn't know it. Okay. But you never know because you know you right. always have an assistant or something. So Don might have been there, but he didn't get any credit for all. And you edited that book as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was... I think I feel like that is, and again, this is just my perception, but I feel like that's kind of the, the first thing that uh, hit me personally from DC superheroes since, since the Watchmen and and original Dark Knight as strongly. It's a pretty good book. Yeah, you know, if you're into good books. Yeah, well, you know, and again, I, you know. As an editor, I, well, Grant, what you know about Superman? I mean, please, what am I doing? Am I am I sitting there holding his hand? There's a certain amount of uh, cult of of uh, misinformation, I think, that that especially came out of DC, where these these certain editors were these ma- magicians that made these creative people. And it's like, well. Give me a fucking break, you know. I mean, I'm not calling up Frank Miller and, and Grant Morris and berating them or saying, "Oh, you're missing something here." Right. No, my hardest, me and my assistant on that book, the hardest job we had was getting Frank Quietly or Vin Deegan mm-hmm. paid. That was the hardest thing. Right. We couldn't get him paid. Was that an easy book just to get through? Then there wasn't any. Absolutely, it was a joy, and it was just all you did was. Send an email or get on the phone and go. Oh my God! Mm-hmm. You know, you read the script and you just you melt. Your head melts and go. You know, just that first page, the entire origin of Superman in four panels. Right. It's just like, okay, where do how did we go from here? You know. And I just talked to uh, Grant uh, last week about his really wonderful moment with the the punk. Gay person getting ready to jump, and Superman oh, right, coming yeah. and going. Hey, you know, the amount of mail, the amount of. I mean, he's like mm-hmm. Bob. It'll it'll make you cry. Uh, you know, it's just uh, one page mm-hmm. affected so many people, and it's like, yeah. I mean, that's it's a lot of power. 
And I, mm-hmm. I imagine it was hard for them to follow, or, or Morrison especially, to follow up with his Batman after that because it didn't seem like it seemed like he was trying to do. Now let's do a monthly starting with the same team, right? And you know, for, personally, I was expecting like, all right, let's see him do it with Batman now, and right. that's not that no. wasn't their plan. No, no, and then uh, then couldn't hold it together, right. you know, just I mean, well, I'm always surprised by maybe the industry or readers thing with him, it's not like, it's not like it's hard math to figure out how fast the guy is right, and so anybody ever complaining like oh, this guy that, this guy that's always put out four issues a year is, 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 hasn't put out his fifth issue I know. this year I know, him it's and I, like, I love him he's an amazing person just amazing but we do not get along when it comes to that <laughs> We are not going to ever agree, you know. It's like, well, you know, I'll get it done when I get it done. People are eating. There are children with, you know, pink right. live under the roof of a retailer. And I think that's the dangerous thing when, when people sometimes working on Batman comics don't realize that maybe they should scoot over to the David Bazzichelli side of things. Yeah, yeah. Go slow down. Go, go. Yeah, sit on. Pull over to the side of the road. There are other people on the road behind you. Yeah, you know. I'm always amazed the uh, that one cartoonist, uh, Raphael Grandpa. Oh yeah. His work, I think, is fantastic, and everyone. Look, I've never heard anyone complain about his speed, and he's done a 60-page comic and like two short stories in his career. I know. And like. And they solicited Dark Horse solicited that fantastic uh, looking yeah looking uh, I forget the name of it yeah it's beautiful hair yeah. what was it called yeah the, the book that's already come out no that's yeah. there's uh, a new one no no that, that was just Mesmo that was his first book right but I don't know I don't know what kind of witchcraft he pulled to not have the reputation that he knows the, he's from Brazil he knows the boys okay so he knows so, Fabio and Gabriel right I actually gave got him one of his first jobs we uh and it was Azarello that uh, I think I can't remember whether I stuck him under Azarello's nose or whatever, but we did that Vertigo story uh, of uh, Constantine. Oh, oh right, right. Yeah, yeah uh, Constantine, and uh, with the uh, the story about uh, the Chicago uh, baseball team, why they never win or whatever yeah. the hell it was. I forget. Or it wasn't Boston. I can't remember. I'm not a baseball fan. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was Chicago. What's your problem? Saying that to the dog, not to Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Just get that clear. <laughs> I was fine either way. Um, I kind of feel like we've taken up a good chunk of your time today. Yeah, no it's worries. been a pretty amazing conversation, Yay. going in a million different different directions. directions. Definitely. Well, Obviously, thank you for having me. Thank you so much, reminder folks. We've been talking to Bob Shrek, joined by Randy as well. Occasionally, <laughs> thank you, Randy and Bandit and Bandit. Uh, very early on, but thankfully Bandit's cool. been uh, very well. Oh, you got a little yawn out of him. <laughs> there we go. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. There's a thorn tree in the garden, if you know just what I mean. And I hate to hurt your feelings. It's not the way it seems Cause I miss her She's the only girl I've cared for The only one I've known And no one ever shared my love And we alone And I miss her 
But it all seems so strange to see Cause she'd never turn her back on me And leave without a last goodbye And if she winds up walking the streets Loving every other man she meets Who'll be the one to answer why Lord, I hope it's not me If I never see her face again, I never hold her hand. And if she's in somebody's arms, I know I'll understand. But I miss that girl. I still miss that girl. Someday soon, soon.